Welcome to this omnibus edition of Happy Times and Places, in which a special guest chooses a Doctor Who story and their five favourite things about it. I, Toby Adok, have to then watch that story and see if I can guess what those favourite things are, all the while whilst making observations and accentuating the positive. Well, hello. I'm in a funny old mood because it's my birthday. It's the end of my birthday. Not when you listen to this, so don't send me if you were so inclined. I'm not suggesting you would have been to send me congratulations because the chances are, the way my release schedule is going... This will be released closer to my closer to my next birthday, number forty-eight, uh, than to the one I'm currently on the fag end of. Um, but uh, appropriately this week, because what I do is I send out, uh, you know, missives to friends and ask them to choose a story, and they come back with a story, so I strike that off the list. And then in their own time, they send me their videos or audios, telling me what they love about the particular story they've chosen. And my special guest this week. Uh, sent me his thoughts on this story uh, a couple of days ago uh, and I know about this story because it is my birth story so I know that it was broadcast uh, 47 years ago because it's my 47th birthday uh, as I speak I was born between episodes 3 and 4 so that seemed like too good an opportunity to miss I was going to miss it but I find myself at the back end of my birthday feeling a little melancholy <laughs> because I don't know as a kid you know the birthday birthday was a thing to really look forward to it of course because it comes hot on the hills of Christmas and New Year once the birthday's over that's pretty much it now for me till Christmas um, but of course a birthday the feeling as a kid is very exciting uh, and as I get to 47 I still sort of see it as this sort of little haven where you know where it's my day and everything's perfect but of course I'm I'm 47, so I had to tidy the corner, I had to do a bit of this and a bit of that, and my other half had things that she was doing, and I found myself going, oh, oh, is this... I had to walk the dog because it's a bit cold outside, and you know, so I'm going, oh, I'm, I'm, it's, not, it's not quite what birthdays were. Of course they're not, 47. Uh, neither of my kids have come over. Um, don't live around the corner, two minutes away. There's no estrangement there or anything like that. They just couldn't be bothered to come over. So um, I'm feeling a little... Honest, a little melancholy and I don't want to go to bed on my birthday with that feeling of and I know what it is it's middle-aged it's 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 middle-aged it's not middle-aged spread is it that's my tummy middle-aged what is it midlife crisis that's all I'm experiencing I never thought I'd be 47 I still don't think I'm 47 I still look through the eyes of my, the 16 year old me I still know as little I'm still lacking in all the, the confidences I thought you got when you became a grown-up none of that changes it's just that the eyes, well, it's, you, know, you still have all of the old hang-ups, except you navigate them slightly, slightly in a slightly creakier fashion. Um, and every time you get knocked down, it hurts a bit more when you get up. So, what do I do when life makes, life plays with one's emotions, especially emotions that are tied to childhood, because, of course... You know, birthdays a thing that that, that that I think do always put us in mind of childhood because that's when birthdays were great or they were supposed to be great or that they were looked forward to. They were some anyway. Um, so what do I do? I turn to Doctor Who. And why not turn to my birth story on the occasion of my birth, even though it's 20 past two in the morning. I'm making this birthday last as long as possible. Um, and so I'm going to get my special guest 
to I've, I've, I mean I've literally just downloaded this so I don't know if he introduces himself don't know what he says he, the, the form is what I tell them to do is to introduce themselves and to say a little bit about why they've chosen the story so let's see if he does that and if not I'll fill in the blanks after his introduction hello Toby thanks very much for asking me to do this it should be a lot of fun I'm looking forward to it my name's Tom Solinsky and I am a writer and a podcaster and a corporate coach. And your project made me think of a question that I've pondered before. If I had uh, a fan of the new series who'd never seen any Doctor Who from pre-2005, who asked me, Tom, I'd like to get into classic Doctor Who, where should I start? What show would I show them? What episode would I pick? Now, it's tempting to leap straight for one of the all-time fan-favourite classics for your Genesis of the Daleks or your, your uh, Talons of Wang Chang, but are we really going to start with a six-parter? Um, all right, then what about uh, Caves of Androzani or City of Death? And they're great, but they're very atypical of the show at that time or at any time, really. Uh, so, all right, well, clearly I'm not going to go for anything black and white. Let's not run before we can walk. What about a kind of good, solid Tom Baker four-parter? Robots of Death, that would be good. Or uh, maybe uh, Planet of Evil, something like that. Uh, would it be nice if there was some extra hook? You know, if there was some classic monster or something like that that this fan was already familiar with that would kind of draw them in. But <laughs> to be clear, I'm not going to show them Revenge of the Cybermen and I'm not going to show them uh, Destiny of the Daleks. So what about a master story? What about Terror of the Autons? That would be good. It's the first master story. It's the Autons, which I'll be familiar with from Rose, but yeah, <laughs> see that, that CGI troll doll teddy bear thing does not look great. And that's always the risk. You'll show them something and it will have all the worst qualities of the mythical Doctor Who that we got made fun of in the playground about. So something which was a bit more on solid ground. The Demons, that's pretty good. It's five episodes, it's not four. And, you know, even after it's been restored, Rachel Clonity's not great. What about The Time Warrior? You can see, The Time Warrior's got a lot of stuff on film. It's a lot of historical settings, which look great because the BBC costume department could do that easily. It's got a classic monster. The Sontaran's never better. It's the first Sontaran story and it's the first... Sarah Jane Smith story. So we get to see the Doctor through somebody else's eyes. I reckon that the Time Warrior is the perfect old Who episode to show to a new Who fan. And that's why I've chosen it. Also happens to be one of my favourites. So none of the things I've said are going to be one of my uh, four or five favourite things. I haven't decided what those are yet. I haven't watched the, sh the show yet. I'm going to sit down and do that now. Uh, so sit back, enjoy, relax with me as we watch The Time Warrior. Oh, well, thanks to Tom uh, and a typically uh, eloquent introduction. I say I ask friends. I mean, I've met Tom once or, well, during one period of time uh, at Edinburgh Fringe. But it's slightly more complicated than that. He's, he's a very, very interesting guy and a very smart guy. Uh, maybe I will save my connection with Tom uh, to a lull in the story because I, I sometimes kick myself for talking too much before the story starts and then I spend my time going um, oh that's a nice ladder um, 
uh, or you know the big bobo and I go oh yeah what's interesting is which I think I've pointed out before is <laughs> currently in my head I have nothing interesting to say at all and I'm just buying myself some time um show you're working Toby so look uh it's uh, uh Tom who will I know uh come up with some interesting things um he was the second person by the way in in the, in the space of a week to ask for he was the first of two to ask for the time warrior but my good friend Dominic Woodward who's a comedian um I know this is his favorite story and he went can I do the time warrior? I was like it's been claimed literally about five days ago so uh, you wait for the time warrior to come along and two come along at once so Dom's doing a different story but that's for another time now I want you to get ready uh, to play the time warrior in three two one Uh, and I think this was my first introduction to this title sequence, which is quite busy. I, I, I like it because I like the streaks of light. And then I was shocked at how reminiscent it is of, of Tom Baker's because Tom Baker's time tunnel was my intro to this. And then when I started collecting Pertwiz, I got the earlier ones. And I definitely know because I like the book of this. This was the first season... 11 story that I got it was the first it was the one I fancied really because I I like I remember enjoying the book the book cover has surely got to be uh, a, a, a contender for the best target book cover the 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 the, the, the rendition of links I'm going to commit now is it Jeff Cummins that did it uh, it's an or is it Steve Kite or oh, cure subtitle um, it's an excellent excellent cover um, this is now Sheila Fay who plays Meg. She was in a. I remember when I was getting this. She was in a sitcom called Help that nobody remembers that had Stephen McGann in it, and uh, uh, it's it's about three three Liverpudlian scallywags, and and she played. She was the other regular. She had a cafe, um, so I was quite oh Sheila Fay from Help, and now of course it's Meg from the Time Warrior was in a sitcom nobody remembers, but she was married to. Um, Ken Jones from Porridge. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm sure I will say a lot about David Dacre and John J. Carney as Iron Gron and Bloodaxe. I love the pair of them. It's funny because when I read the book, Bloodaxe seemed very much like, you know, second fiddle sidekick. They didn't come across to me when I read the book as classic Robert Holmesian double act, uh, the uninitiated. Uh, Robert Holmes, the writer of this, is is sort of quite famous for having telling his stories with characters, um, uh, Garen and Unstoff, and uh, uh, even Oscar and Anita, sort of d double acts characters who, uh, of course, uh, uh, Jago and Lightfoot, c characters who sort of tell the story by bouncing off each other amusingly and and and, and through their relationship. Um, but I never had Iron Gunner's blood axe down as that in the book. It just seemed to me that blood axe was sort of Maybe because I, I like florid gentlemen like Jago and Lightfoot. They're, they're more my sort of characters on the page, maybe. But Bloodaxe just seemed to me like, you know, not very interesting um, uh, bandit type, you know, second fiddle bandit. But actually in this, you know, they are very much a, a double act. Um, uh, uh, and... and uh, he has real trouble with his horse here, John J. Carney. Um, 
Uh, and this, this, and I, I love the fact the Santaran spaceship has endured. It's just a golf ball, but it's brilliant. It's simple and it's cleverly rendered. Um, uh, and of course, this is a period drama which the BBC does so well. So they've got all these costumes kicking about. So you know, there's absolutely you know no fault can be picked in any of this stuff. And even the beards are good, which isn't always a given. The beards and the, I assume the wigs. Um, and I mean, I could, I could. <laughs> I love Iron Grun's bravado. I love Lynx's costume. Um, and this is all, you know, beautiful. There's lots of film, as Tom says, which always, you know, I think at the start of the season makes you feel, uh, you know, but look at the attention to detail here. So, okay, he's got a translation device. He's an alien. It, you know, he's humanoid. Oh, so it's not that exciting. He's a humanoid guy with a, with a helmet on. He looks just a bit like a war. Oh, hang on. He's got a translation device. Hang on, there's, 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 there's a suggestion of sort of brown leathery skin beneath beneath that mask. Hang on, he's got a nifty flag. I mean, in some stories, this nifty flag. I adore that. And, and the fact that he goes, yeah, I've just uh, uh, the first thing I'm going to do when I land on this primitive world is I am going to claim it for my for my warlike people. Uh, and I love the little salutey business. It's not a salute, but the the sort of uh, chest thumping thing that he does. I used to, I used to, when I used to play as Sontarans as a kid, I used to sort of, I am field major style. He never actually did that, but I, I think I was influenced by that, the sort of chesty salutey thing that he did. So I'd, I'd thump my chest quite hard, um, in order to make my feel myself feel like a hard Sontaran officer. Um, although God, poor old Kevin Lindsay had a heart condition, so I thought. <laughs> I was unconsciously going to probably killed him. Um, I think, and, and, and look, at, I love the way he moves. Um, I love the fact that his, his costume is, you know, it fits him snugly. All too often, you know, well, when has the show got later on? Sometimes the costumes didn't quite sort of fit as snugly and, and, and monsters sort of armour or whatever or, or, or space gear was sort of slightly wrinkled and that's what we do so well now with those sort of ripply chested um, whatever they're made of uh, uh, there's the stuff that you get on monsters now where people don't they, they have body casts and, and they, they fit very snugly and, and, and I think we've we've greatly improved that sort of thing that this is a you know this definitely anticipates that that's definitely what they're trying to do here and, and largely succeeds I mean yeah well it does succeed I mean I think the time this is a sleek and snug and tight fitting uh, <laughs> and I because Iron Gron in this company is a wily fellow you know he, 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 in the kingdom of the blind he, he is the one eyed man uh, um, but I, I love the fact that sort of Link's just sort of largely ignores but without being oh weakling earthling he, but he just doesn't rise to any of it, uh, and I think their relationship uh, is is rather terrific. Um, <laughs> it's a very grubby mattress that the uh, cream of the scientific community are being uh, are being housed in. Now, of course, this is because we think of this as the start of uh, season eleven, which it is. But of course, it's 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 in the production block of season 10 so you know in my mind I always lump it in with uh, you know what follows and you think of you know Sarah Jane starting in a, in a sort of block but but no she, she starts in a one-off um, for her because 
I mean, this is this is broadcast at the end of the year, but is is uh, I think filmed in about May. Um, so there's a big gap between between recording and, and transmission. Uh, but uh, but uh, I always rather like it when you know unit are sort of called on to solve a thing, and so what they do is and it's about sort of bung everybody in a. Uh, in a, in a, in a, so, so scientists have gone missing. Units uh, got to find out why they've got missing. So they they've housed them all together in a place with Doctor Who. Um, but of course, Nicholas Nicholas Courtney's only in this one episode. Then he's in Dinosaurs, isn't he? And then we don't see him until Planet of the Spiders. So, yeah, it's very you know very much not not part of the furniture anymore and yet they're sort of part of the show's dna still and will continue to be for for, for a little bit before they sort of fade away but i that that, that sort of content i i didn't I, I i sort of you never sort of think of never think of this period as the show of as one with continuity um because i was brought up with the 80s where continuity became a marvelous thing and then a really dirty word but but you know, in the sixties, where it was very much, you know, lots of lots of different places, different genres, different you know, historicals to science fiction. Um, you know, the monk came back, but uh, and then the, the brigadier came back after Web of Fear, as you know, Colonel Lethbridge's brigadier. But but it, but then when you hit the seventies, you suddenly have loads of regular characters who, you know, who appear for the next few years, and then that load of continuity vanishes and then you get the 80s where they sort of just keep plucking from the show's past um, and it's a it's it's our eternal conundrum as fans isn't it we 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 love nods to things that we know but uh, uh, we get really annoyed if the show disappears up its own fundament and I think the 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 70s do it pretty well. The unit era does it pretty well because the characters are there for continuity. We don't have to know too much about them. You know, we don't, um, you know, there are no no big emotional journeys that mean that we have to we have to know what, what the brigadier has been through to, to, to reference his emotional state or something like that. Uh, he does exactly what he says on the tin. I love Professor Rubish. Um, I love Elizabeth Sladen. I had a Doctor Who magazine which had the Doctor Who archives of the Time Warrior, and there's a picture of Elizabeth Sladen in her sort of Robin Hood kind of gear, um, and it was a it was a big picture of that accompanying the the archives, uh, and she's absolutely beautiful in it. And I vowed then to marry her, and like many of the my ambitions, I singularly failed. I'd never even met Elizabeth Sladen. I did get a signed photograph of her through the post, signed Doctor Who. Five Doctors uh, publicity postcard, but I never, I never had the pleasure. I love her. I think she's fabulous. Um, it was funny because my brothers and sisters always talked of Sarah as the one who screamed. Uh, is she? And she's. It's, 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 uh, oh yeah, Sarah screamed all the time. I said, but but actually she doesn't. And so I, I think I grew up with her as thinking of her as, as I slightly dismissed her because I think for, for my brothers and sisters she was part of the furniture for them so they were a bit dismissive of her because they'd sort of grown up you know they were of the age when they were when they were watching um, and, I, and I remember as I as I gradually collected the older episodes just going 
she, wow, she's wow, she's really good. Uh, and again, I my instinct is to not like the, not my favourite is not to be everybody else's favourite because I pro, I, you know, it's pathetic. You sort of pride yourself and go, well, yeah, uh, everybody else likes the White Album. I like the Beatles to the Revenge. I don't know what they're called. Um, to 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 go, I'm not the same as the crowd. Um, <laughs> I hate myself for that. Um, so I, I think I was inclined to go, yeah, well, everyone likes Sarah Jane. She's everyone's favourite. But then you just go, oh, no, well, this, because there's a really good reason. Um, I watched Pyramids of Mars earlier today for fun. It's my birthday present to myself. Home with Tom Baker, don't put a foot wrong. Dot Cotton and, uh, Alan, and, and Cat Weasel's husband. Well, Al Alan Rowe here as Edward of Wessex. Fine servant to Dot Two. Uh... It was also Jeffrey Belden's partner. Uh, I will talk about those two as well. I mean, they're you know they're the sort of pretty much bottom of the credits characters played by two estimable character actors, uh, both with fine stories to tell. Uh, Gordon Pitt, on the other hand, this guy I don't know much about at all. He's I know he's dead sadly, and 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 died many many years ago, eighty five I think. Um, and he's an extra in the Wheel in Space. But apart from that, I'm afraid I don't know an awful lot about him. I'm sorry, Gordon Pitt, uh, and you don't get an awful lot to do here. Although your character is referred to later to have died in the cells, so um, it's uh, you, you don't even get an on-screen death either. You just get sort of referred to in passing. Um, so I'm sorry, I don't know much about you, Gordon Pitt. Um, I hope you're happy. Um, yeah. So Alan Rowe. Uh, he has been already in Doctor Who as Dr. Evans in the moon base. Uh, he comes back as Skin Sale in Horror Fang Rock, one of the great... I'll watch that over Christmas. I can't talk about the stories. I've been watching Doctor... Do you know what? Over Christmas, I've been watching Doctor Who for pleasure because I've researched it for the podcasts or when I do these, I talk all the way through it. Uh, and it was an utter joy. I did Horror Fang Rock, Pyramids of Mars, Resurrection of the Daleks over the past week or so, and just watched them. And I loved every minute of all of them. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm not blind to their faults, and I won't be blind to the faults of this, but I don't think this has got many faults. Yes, I should do a confession. I, I really like this story. This is one of my, this is one of my ten out of tens. Um, I don't think there's much wrong with it at all, and what there is wrong with it. I forgive, even though it's not a, you know, it's not a big hitter. It's a funny script. I like all the characters. David Dacre knows exactly what he's doing. If I've got an axe, I'll hit the table with it. If I've got a chicken bone, I'll throw it at somebody. <laughs> I love David Dacre. Um, he's, he's not one to be interviewed, interestingly. Um, uh, I know Marcia Wheeler, who was the production manager or AFM production assistant on this, um, I think she'd said she'd suggested him to the part for the part, and I think she still knows him. Um, and says, "You're a lovely chap, but yeah, he's just not—he's just one of those people who's not not interested in being interviewed." Shame because he became very well known. Um, I mean, he's always been on telly. Oh, he was in Moonfleet. We watched a thing at school. I knew him before I knew he was in Doctor Two because he was in Moonfleet with Adam Godley, who's the the voice of the monkey and chimpanzee in the Umbrella Academy. I only know that because we're not allowed to watch the Umbrella Academy because the minute the chimpanzee spoke, my other half went, we're not watching this. I don't do talking animals. <laughs> She's got a thing about talking animals. 
Um, so uh, I'm going to leave pictures of Frobisher around the place. Scare her away. Um, uh, and we watched Moonfleet at school after after games or whatever because the BBC were doing Moonfleet. Not the Smuggler's Bay one from the 60s. I'm not that old. Uh, and it was Adam Godley and David Dacre. So that's where I first saw David Dacre. And then I was pleased to see he'd been in, in Doctor Who. And of course, he's uh, he's Rig in Nightmare of Eden. So what I didn't realise when we watched Moonfleet was that I'd, I'd actually seen him in Doctor Who. Um, I love Professor Rubish as well. Uh, Donald Pelmier. Now, he was definitely suggested by by Marcia Wheeler. Uh, and he's not, a mass, not done a massive amount of telly. And he's not a... I'm sure he wasn't with one of the, the, the big agents, but he seizes his opportunity here. Still going strong in his early 90s. I've been to his house uh, and we had lovely coffee and biscuits. Uh, and he's he's actually slightly northern, I think. So he's not... Um, so he's not doing his own voice. He's not using his own voice here. Um, but it's interesting because often those characters are played by actors that you then see pop up in loads of stuff. He's done bits and bobs and he's sustained a career, but he, I wouldn't say he's had the same sort of career as a lot of the character actors like the, the, the John Ringhams and the Alan Rose and people like that who crop up playing good parts in, in Doctor Who. He is in the Day of the Triffids, though, the Ken Hannam one, the BBC one that's just been released in an abominable form on Blu-ray uh, with the wrong font and uh, 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 and treatment of it. Let's not get into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and uh, yes, I think Rubish is rather fun and I liked him in the book and I like his performance in this. And it's interesting because they, because, well, no, it's not interesting. I think it's interesting because the credits for episode one and four go Lynx, Rubish, Iron Blood axe and they're, and they're double, the the you know two person two people per slide, and then for the middle episodes, Rubish gets chucked right to the end, pretty much, and it goes links, Iron Grom, Blood axe, and they get single captions. Um, so they obviously didn't quite know whether he was the main, one of the main supporting characters or, 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 or and, and I think probably because he he hadn't done a lot, you know, there's the, there's there's that with the billings as well. So he 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 flits he flits to and fro across the credits. But anybody that cares about that sort of thing, and actually I'm watching the DVD, so the credits will make me cross because when they rebuilt them, uh, they forgot to put Blood Axe and Iron Gron and Blood Axe's caption in. And I think because on the broadcast version they'd forgotten to put them in or something had gone wrong, uh, so that slide was inserted quite late and is therefore a bit shorter than it should be. So I think then when they rebuilt them, that caused some sort of glitch which meant that they, it didn't go in nobody cares about that except me there's nobody in the world that cares about that except me and me i care far too much <laughs> uh we haven't even talked about doctor who uh john pertwee this is uh where as the, the late much missed terence sticks would say his hair is getting very bouffant uh, <laughs> um i i I love Pertwee having these sorts of gadgets. There's just something about that, that sort of way that he's, you know, he sleeps in the chair. I buy that the Doctor, that John Pertwee can sleep in a chair with his feet up um, and get quite a decent sleep. Um, yeah, Rubish has gone and he's left his glasses, which is going to be very important. Yep, blind is about without his glasses. Um, And uh, 
because of course Elizabeth Sladen wasn't originally cast as so, oh one of those uh, soldiers is Steve Ismay who's a lovely fella and he's the guy I always email when I want to find out about an extra from Doctor Who do you know do you remember Brian Gilmore I go, oh yeah lovely bloke didn't take himself too seriously never came for a pint though I love Steve um, he's a proper Cockney character uh, <laughs> and and always sends uh, always sends a lovely email back uh, 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 and, and does, does done loads and loads of Doctor Who's and loads of other things um, so yes Elizabeth Sladen was not originally cast and for years it was a mystery because Barry Letts was too much of a gentleman to say well we cast you know person X and then and, 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 and the suggestion seems to be that John, John Pertwee didn't sort of feel that the chemistry clicked um, and it's public knowledge now there's an actress called uh, April Walker who is in the Faulty Towers episode she's a great com comedy um, uh, uh, you know worked a lot uh, with a lot of comedians on telly at the time um, so it would be interesting to have seen what April Walker's take on the companion would have been but she yeah she didn't didn't make it didn't make it past uh, the Pertwee scrutiny having been cast uh but and interesting because of the way the BBC works, she was contracted to be paid for the season. But because she got other work at the BBC that paid a sort of equivalent amount, she, um, she didn't get she, she she did get paid, but she had to do another job instead. Whereas I'm I'm sure now you'd go if you contract me for a job and I end up not doing it because you've decided something, you still have to pay me. And then if I get another job, I have to get paid for doing that other job. But uh, uh, BBC worked in different ways those days, uh, um, but it was it was for years. It was a mystery, and it was the mighty David Brunt, who is another person I've never met. But uh, we, you know, there is a, a network of people that you can email and ask questions, and sometimes people ask me questions, and sometimes I help. I can help. I always try. Sometimes the reason I don't help is if I can't. Um, uh, and David found in the production file for Invasion of the Dinosaurs a slip of paper giving away that it was uh, it was April Walker. But for years it was a mystery. It was only when the, the DVD of Dinosaurs, I think, came out that that was revealed. Um, good work, David. It was, it's, it's lovely how there are sort of things we, up until relatively recently, didn't know. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, you know, there are probably things we will you know that we currently don't know there are known knowns and there are known unknowns so there's things we don't know we don't know that one day we might know um but that's why the archaeology of being a being a fan of this stuff that has such a rich history is so fascinating um this is peckforton castle uh so which is not far from here not much doctor who's been done up north i'm in manchester uh, uh and so all of the extras in uh iron god and black oh in I'll talk about Jeremy Bullock as Hal the Archer, who's entered here. Um, uh, all the extras in uh, in Blood Axe and Iron Castle are, are locally based uh, actors. They recruited the film actors from up north, so a lot of them are uh, from Manchester or Liverpool or Leeds, uh, and, and some of them quite experienced, and some of them, as we'll discover in episode three, and I see him there, Steve Brunswick, uh, not quite so experienced. And when he opens his mouth in episode three, you'll see that the, 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 the ugly proof of that. Um, and I've got an amusing story to go with that as well. Um, 
but he gets accredited in episode three because he gets given a line but we'll talk about that when we come to it um but Peckforton castle i went to a wedding there uh last year god 20 was it 2020 oh it was like another world because it was when we were allowed to sit next to people and lick their faces and spit in their mouths and everything and i sat next to norna from frontios who was a guest at the wedding but i didn't lick her face or spit in her mouth um uh, and i was placed next to her because my friend's kind um oh what a cliffhanger what a mask it's a simple cliffhanger the monster takes his helmet off to reveal that he's a monster we knew he was a monster we could see he'd got leathery skin underneath i suspect there were photos of him in the paper it's not there's nothing in that that is a surprise at all uh it, or 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 worthy of oh elena edward and hal get a three a three caption gosh yeah it's a real it's a real hodgepodge this first set of credits uh, especially on the dvd where one slide is missing um uh, they altered that for the blu-ray but so but there is nothing in that cliffhanger on paper say uh that you know when you when you'd read it in in say doc 2 magazine in the doc 2 archives you know uh the you know the, the licks removes his helmet and, and reveals his his face beneath or whatever that would make you go in any way what well, that's that's a remarkable uh cliffhanger uh in execution it it's one of the i just think it's perfect because it's very nicely shot yeah alan bromley the director we'll talk about him um uh and that's reminded me of something i'll tell you in episode two it's a bit embarrassing um uh, for me not for anybody else but that, that cliffhanger i'll get to the, i'll explain this cliffhanger it kills me um the way it's shot i think the fact that it's on film but it's the turn it's the sheer well one it's the oh there's a mask underneath the mask or there's a something underneath the something i don't know why why that's that that peeling of that layer is is witty but it sort of is is you think well you know he looks like a metalhead monster guy uh, oh but there's something underneath and we're seeing what's underneath what is underneath is one of the best monster designs in the history of the show uh the fact that you've got the articulated eyes the actor's eyes underneath means that you've already got a performance going on the fact that kevin lindsay then decides to stick his tongue out and make links and the sontarans therefore sticky outy tonguey things which is just a very simple way of being a bit alien that does that doesn't look pony it doesn't look silly it's not it's not too avant-garde it's not too out there it's just a little touch that is completely believable it's the fact that links has got little bits of facial hair um people don't think to give sort of monsters facially sometimes monsters that's what they are they're a hairy thing but a, a, a sort of leather skin thing with a bit of facial hair i just think it's that attention to detail that the concept the design the execution i love that cliffhanger and yet it is nothing except for the fact that as it, uh, 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 it is more than a sum of its parts or because of each of the little parts that everybody brings to it it's absolutely terrific uh so i'm i mean i might choose that or i mean i or or do i just choose choose links as a whole um no i think i'm going to choose that that oh how do i because what's what's tom gonna do i've got to think what tom, tom's gonna choose but 
he might choose something good. I'm going to choose the cliffhanger uh, 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 with the with the caveat that I might make it include links as a whole later in retrospect, depending on how how the rest of this goes. Because I think Kevin Lindsay's performance, combined with that costume, combined with that mask, combined with the the, the sheer impact the Sontarans make as a as a one off monster and just one of them that they've become part of the show's history who I never think have been quite as good uh, as 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 they are as they are here and that's no disrespect to Strax and Dan Starkey who I love um, but I, I, they are a slightly different iteration uh, and I know Dan's very good at uh, and I know he wanted to do more with the, the voice when he first came in he's I've done an interview with him where he's talked about this and and the tongue and stuff and the director told him not to um, and, and I think Strax is absolutely brilliant and I love Strax but I see Strax as Strax I don't uh, 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 I think he gets his own subsection whereas the the, the Sontarans and, and Strax is of course a benign character in, in a sense you know he's, he, he becomes a good guy uh, and he's almost a sort of sidekick of, of the Doctor whereas when you're looking at the Sontarans as a race and their depiction in, in the series as a, as a threat as a nemesis I, I don't think they've been better than here and I think one of the really interesting things about Classic Who, well, no, I will, I will talk about that later because the episode isn't playing and I will get to a point halfway through episode three where I run out of things to say. No, you won't, Toby. Yes, I will. You, you never stop talking. I actually do, um, but just not when I should. Right. The cliffhanger to episode one is what I'm choosing. Uh, let's see what Tom Selinsky has chosen as his favourite thing of episode one. Of the Time Warrior. Well, if anything, episode one was even better than I remembered it. It goes like the clappers, doesn't it? It, it can't be more than five minutes from the titles fading away to seeing all of those modern-day scientists in Iron Gron's castle. It's so efficient. Now, favourite things. Uh, I'm quite tempted to pick that flag that <laughs> links plants in the ground with the, the, uh, the two bits that just pop out like that. It's a beautiful piece of on-location special effects work uh, and I'm quite tempted to pick the fact that this is the first uh, uh, the first instance of a season arc phrase uh, as Metabelius 3 is name-checked just before the end uh, but it has to be the reveal of Lynx uh, the perfectly domed head that fits precisely underneath the helmet it's a wonderful visual gag it's what the Sontarans are probably still best known for, and it just works beautifully. What a wonderful mask, and what a fantastic performance from Kevin Lindsay. Yes! Yes! Oh, go on. Could this be the one where I, where I get, where I guess as more than I don't? And I nearly went, I even nearly went for the one he nearly went for, didn't I? I said I, said I liked the flag. Uh, he liked the flag. And what I love is that Tom, I don't know how others have, done it but Tommy is actually watching I could hear the title I could hear the title music behind him he's watching and then talking to camera so he's sort of doing what I'm doing without without, without chatting over the really the, the actual bits that you're supposed to watch and appreciate um so that's really interesting because he's not uh, I don't think anybody's ever quite done that before never had anybody sort of fresh off the boat um it's a great episode isn't it great cliffhanger lots to talk about as you can tell um so that was episode one of the time warrior um join me for the next one i'm going to carry straight on 
Uh, I'm going to make this birthday last as long as possible. But um, I don't want this to end on a damp squib, so I'm going to I'm going to stick my tongue out and uh, expect you to admire my facial hair, which has actually gone a little bit out of control because uh, it's been Christmas and um, and, I've, and I've simply let myself go. I think you'll find. 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 The cover is, of course, by Jeff Cummins. I knew the cover was by Jeff Cummins, but when you say things out loud, suddenly your brain goes, Did you mean that? Yes, I did mean it. Shut up, brain. And it's a brilliant cover. One of the best. Go and look at it. Now. Ah, well, welcome back. It is episode two of The Time Warrior. And what I will have just played you as the intro to this episode is the introduction to it from my special guest, who, as you heard, is Tom Selinski. I'm delighted that Tom uh, is doing what no one has done before, is he is watching the episode, as I'm just about to, and then giving his instant reaction to camera into his microphone, depending on whether you're watching or listening. Um, uh, And uh, so we, we get a sort of immediate hot take so he's doing what 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 I'm doing, uh, which is really interesting and a bit of a bit of a, a, a change from what uh, I am used to. So um, we've come hot off the heels of both of our favourite things. Tom and I have chosen the same thing for episode one, which is very exciting because it means that uh, I stand a chance of winning. I've never won at the time of recording this. I have never won this podcast by guessing uh, more of the favourite things of my guest than, uh, than, than I don't guess. Um, so anyway, let's see if we are in accord for episode two, which is going to start in three, two, one, now. So, um, yes, I started talking about the this title sequence, uh, which was a bit of a shock to me uh, in episode one, but then it was over. Because um, I didn't, I had no idea that you saw uh, the whole of John Pertwee, um, uh, which is still a bit of a, 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 a culture shock to me. I expect the Doctor's face in the titles. I don't expect the Doctor's legs. Uh, so, the, and, and and because these are a sort of halfway house, you know, between the the the, the, the famous Pertwee titles and the, the the definitive Tom Baker titles that use some elements of of this Pertwee title sequence. I've never quite settled into it, and it's a shame because it's a it's a good sequence, um, um, but it's quite it's quite busy, isn't it? And I know for a lot of people it's a, it's a favourite because it's got all the great things of that that Baker sequence. But uh, but but the addition of John Pertwee's legs, which is enough to sell it for some people. I just noticed there Pertwee gives gives a nod. The Doctor gives a nod as if to say, "Yes, yes, I I I knew it to some tyrant." Um, uh, and ah yes, Jeremy Bullock, who I mentioned briefly last episode. Um, who at the time of recording has very recently passed away. Uh, I've just I've just put out my memorial video that I do at the end of every year. I do an in memoriam. Uh, it takes me all year to put together. Um, uh, so it's always delightful when someone gives it a thumbs down because well, not really for me. So I'll wipe the smile off somebody's face who's worked for hours on a thing. Don't start getting. But but really, if if you don't like a video, just don't do anything. Just just go somewhere you do like. Uh, 
Uh, I know I'm inviting trouble by doing this because somebody will go, oh, well, I'll do that now to be funny. Um, it, it, it's terrible because that cuts deep. <laughs> it, they, it really does. It ruins your day. Um, okay. Um, well done, people who like ruining people's day. Um, anyway. Uh, but we've all done it. I've reviewed things. I've, I, I actually look back now at things I've reviewed and go, why did I do it? Why was I co so keen to go, oh, and I'll point out what's wrong with this. That'll teach that skilled professional who worked for hours on a thing and maybe had to make a compromise because uh, time was short and I've just gone, ah, oh, yeah, but... Um, uh, and actually, it's one of my regrets, actually. I was, I was asked to review stuff for Doctor Who magazine and I did and I sort of wish sometimes... Because I'm, you know, I'm just a kid who loves Doctor Who being asked to do something something is so keen um and so wow what me right for doctor who magazine yeah but what have my i was right i was writing reviews setting the world to write saying what was wrong with doctor who stories for years now i can do it um and i sort of wish i wish i hadn't really uh uh oh because i didn't i didn't put my opinions um i just i'm just not sure that the world needed them and that's just what didn't need my opinion of, of of, of uh, what was what was definitely the best program of television at the time and some of the best Doctor Who at the time. Uh, but you know, if there was a bit I didn't like, I pointed it out. Uh, which is another reason to do this and be positive. Um, just because I think it's better to be. I'm I'm not blind to the fact that the world is a dark place and full of things that aren't very good. But um, I don't know. I think it's better to try and leave leave a positive impression uh, and, and you know it's very anyway I've, I've talked to him well I didn't mean to go on a segue I was talking about Jeremy Bullock I was talking about Jeremy Bullock and I made a lovely video that took a lot of effort and a lot of heart mm. um, uh, because Jeremy is one of the many people in 2020 who passed away and I, I, I went to Jeremy's home he, he did my Who's Round uh, interview and uh, he was he was lovely um, he was a funny chap he was, he's not what you expect because he played Boba Fett I don't know I think Jeremy Bullock is quite a I thought it was quite a you know and, he, and, and when you see pictures of him he's you know he's, he's got sort of a bit of a handsome leading man about it so when I saw him in things like this he was quite light voiced and he had quite sort of sing song I was like oh that's not what I was expecting at all and he's a lovely man, Jeremy, and very self-deprecating, saying he got the part of Boba Fett just because the costume fit. Boba Fett is a... Because Jeremy Bullock played Boba Fett, as well as Hal the Archer in The Time Warrior, and Tor in the Space Museum opposite William Hartnell, with his uh, drama student friends Peter Saunders and Peter Craze, who are both no longer with Peter Craze. Michael Craze's brother died a couple of weeks after, as I recall this, what, three or four days ago. He died on New Year's Eve. Uh, so I have a picture of me sitting in between Peter and Jeremy uh, when we did a thing together. Uh, Paul Ballard from Phantom Films very kindly sent me the picture and you go, crikey, they're both no longer with us. And both younger than my mum. She's terrifying. And and, uh, and and Jeremy Bullock is an absolute, yeah, legend. He plays Boba Fett, but he was very, very self-deprecating about why he got the part because he fitted the costume. But there's something about Boba Fett, he has, you know, he has bucket loads of uh, inscrutability, inscrutability, inscrutableness, uh, and he's just a simmering presence, and I know the costume's good, but 
there's there's a certain indefinable magic that Jeremy Bullock brings to it. I don't I I don't think any actor could have done that. Um, and I like the fact that therefore the Jeremy Bullock Boba Fett is in Doctor Who as well. And I went to Jeremy Bullock's house and he has a he had a Boba Fett room in his house. He took me up after we'd done the interview where he revealed that when he wasn't working he did lots of painting and decorating. Uh, and it was quite funny because he, he went on, like I sort of went on on a slightly Alan Partridge-y uh, uh, a segue there, Dad. I went down Partridge Avenue um, with my, oh, yeah, yeah, people putting a thumbs down. Um, you know, it's the, it's the worst thing you can do is to take issue with a critic because it makes you sound petty. Uh, and it makes... Uh, and it and it makes it look like it's got to you, and that is that that is the victory for them. Shut up, Toby. I will. Um, and uh, but Jeremy was talking about painting and decorating, and he said he did. He he, he went down Partridge Avenue, where I sort of go. Oh, then sometimes people, you know, these women would this, this the woman would say, oh, and you haven't done that skirting ball properly. Oh well, madam, I think it's fine that you brought your dog back in from the walk and you hadn't dried him, and then you let him go up against the skirting ball. And he got quite sort of sort of pernickety. I'm suddenly going. Boba Fett is being a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit like a bit of a sort of a bit partridgey about, but about his painting and decorating business because he's a very skilled painter and decorator. You know, that was it because we were talking about what he did. You know, when he wasn't acting, I thought he might say, "Oh, out mate in a shop," but he actually was was a skilled and and took his painting and decorating very seriously, and got annoyed with customers who were twats, <laughs> and remembered them twenty years later. Uh, all things that I would do. <laughs> I wouldn't remember any of the houses that went well. I'd remember the woman who annoyed me because she didn't dry a dog from the walk and then blamed my the skirting boards on me. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, after that, uh, dear Jeremy, there he is, uh, took me up to his Boba Fett room where he had every piece of Boba Fett merchandise available from a full-size Boba Fett to a Boba Fett electric guitar, Boba Fett watch, a, a female Boba Fett. Um, and, uh, and here he is about to get his head chopped off uh, uh, by John Jacob and Steve Brunswick again, you can tell. Steve Brunswick's the one with the sort of fur shoulders. Uh, he will peak... We will get peak Brunswick in episode three. Um, but he looks good, Jeremy uh, uh, Bullock. He looks like Robin Hood, doesn't he? And he's in Robin of Sherwood as Edward of Wickham. Uh, so, you know, he was he was around. He was always, he was part, he was part of the furniture. But as I say, I was quite surprised when I got to this to find that sort of sing-song lilt that he has. Much higher register than I, than I thought. Um, but he totally looks the part. You'd have him as Robin Hood, wouldn't you, Jeremy? Uh, and he was, and because he was quite self-deprecating, he's much funnier than he would give himself credit for. I think, but behind that, oh, well, I was just wearing the costume. He's, he was an utter gentleman. He was funny. Um, he was also funny when he was talking about painting and decorating, when he, did, when he didn't mean to be funny. But that's okay, and I'm not being mean when I say that. I, you know, I, I'm, I, I will point out, my own folly equally quickly but it did amuse me it stuck with me the fact that <laughs> anyway so i'm not i'm not pleased i'm speaking with love uh he's a he's a, he's a he was very very decent with his time picked me up from the station uh allowed me into his home his beautiful home his lovely wife too um talked so lovingly of his grandchildren as well so un you know nothing about his career 
bothered him at, at all. He was he was really happy to talk about it. But because some actors would, you know, some actors having played Boba Fett would go, yeah, well, uh, you know, um, the thing about Boba Fett was that, uh, uh, you know, I, it was my idea to do this. Or he just went, well, look, Bob, Boba Fett's amazing and, and an icon, and it's not really much to do with me. I was, it was just fate. It was just, and you go, no, uh, you know, a lot of people big up their parts. I think Jeremy, if anything underplayed his role and 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 i but i don't think it was false modesty either because because you can spot that a mile off i just think he genuinely he liked acting he did loads of really interesting stuff but he loved his grandchildren and he's he just i really liked him and i'm 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 oh you know i'm sad that uh, that uh, the weavers of my childhood dreams uh, are, are dwindling uh, but i'm also extremely lucky to have spent quality time with them I'm not talking much about the Time Warrior, I'm sorry. Uh, it's my birth, it's my party, and I'll segue if I want to. <laughs> I, I, I love the fact that Luke thinks Iron a dick. <laughs> and I love the fact that Iron just smashes his way through everywhere. Oh, and this is where he sees his face for the first time. And, and and the and the and the bit above his nose, the, the sort of little cross. It's such a brilliant design. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I want to call him Toad Face, doesn't he? I love that. Um, but that the articulation, the mouth, in that costume, and the fact that you can see that. And 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 it's funny. I never had this one on VHS because it was one of the ones edited together, wasn't it? And my copy of this, which was I think must have been a very you know second generation from an Australian airing because I had an excellent quality copy of this uh, on a scotch tape to me from us but if you, you, you scotch tapes were the ones that, that lasted but they were really expensive I had the time warrior one to four and seeds of doom one to three on one tape did I or did I have claws of axos seeds of doom one to three seeds of doom four to six time warrior you know what, I can't remember, and I would have known I would have been able to. It was definitely a scotch. I think that was it. I think that's what I had. I think I'd asked for a Pertwee and then Seeds of Doom on a separate tape, and the guy who'd done them had, had, had mixed them up, and I was never quite happy that Tom Baker was stuck in between two John Pertwees. It didn't, didn't feel right. I think I'd maybe wanted Frontier in Space in the middle, uh, and, that, and that actually came on a separate tape. Uh, that probably bothered me far more than it should have done. Look at that! That's a Doc Two image. The Doc, there's a scientist in a medieval castle in his pajamas doing hypnotized science. Uh, Doctor Who d does incongruity beguilingly and brilliantly better than anything else. It's the Yeti on the Lewin tooting back. It's the it's the pajamaed scientist in a medieval castle with computer banks. I love that. Uh, it, 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 uh, and, and here comes Professor Rubish, uh, who can't see, which is probably good for when it comes to read the Claudia credits and finds he's, he's tumbled to the bottom of them. Uh, he's uh, he's. I think I think that's he's bald now. Don't tell me, but I, I think is that a wig? I think it must be. Um, Uh, so I haven't I haven't actually talked about the episode much, so um, I, I, sh I shouldn't be stumbling here because there's plenty to discuss. Oh, Tom, Tom Selinsky, by the way, who's who's doing this, I think, so brilliantly. Um, is, it, it, 
I, I, when I say with this thing, you know, I'm, I'm asking a friends of mine. T Tom did a quiz on Outpost Gallifrey on a forum um, and, and uh, named a number of things. And it was like you had to do pointless. You had to you had to name one that the fewest people would name, I think. And, and I think my my real joker to play was when he said name a member of unit and I uh, but not an extra. And I mentioned Private Upton, who is not credited in Doctor of the Silurians because he's played by Simon Kane, who plays a Silurian, but he does have lines, so he's a he's more of a character. And I explained that in my answer. Um, and anyway, and I won this thing. I won this quiz. It's the only thing I've ever won. I think on Outpost Gallifrey. And this is before I'd done Moth Saint My Doctor Who Scarf or anything like that. Uh, and then I was doing Moth Saint My Doctor Who Scarf in Edinburgh. And this bloke was doing a show nearby, I think, or. We certainly, yes. Oh, because his wife was doing the show after mine, I think, or before mine. She's a fine uh, comic and broadcaster, Deborah Francis White. And um, and he said, oh, I'm Tom Selinski. And I went, you're kidding. And we'd, we'd literally done this thing not long before beforehand. So we met then. And uh, and it's it's amazing, hey? you know, you meet, you come across each other online and then fate, fate throws, fate has thrown many a Doctor Who connection in my way. Not least... June Brown dot Cotton, who actually had my copy of the Time Warrior, that Scotch tape, which I put in, into a into a proper box because my friend had got a video store and he'd got some spare boxes, a grey snapshot plastic box, because I was uh, a spear carrier in a play at Ludlow Castle with an actor called Robert Arnold. Uh, it was in. It was an As You Like It with Touchstone played by Sylvester McCoy. Uh, it was no, no, but it was it was it was the Scottish play. Bob came back the following year to London. It was the Scottish play. David Rintoul, Hayden Gwynn, and Ross was played by Robert Arnold, who was married to June Brown. So I lent him my copy of the Time Warrior, and didn't get, and, and he sent it back to me a year later, just before coming to Ludlow again. So we did actually work with each other again, so he could have carried it. But he, 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 I think he felt guilty, thought, I can't go back to Ludlow till I send that lad his Doctor Who uh, video back. Uh, and and as a reward, bless her, June Brown um, got uh, uh, Sharon, uh, Nick Cotton and Pete Beale to sign photos for me. So I've got signed photos of those. Pete Beale, of course, was an extra in The Face of Evil, which I didn't know at the time. So that's a Doctor Who person. Uh, so I've got signed photos of all this, and she signed hers dot and they put lots of dots on the picture. Um, so she actually, my video copy of the time where I still have in the attic upstairs was actually at Dot Cotton, Lady Eleanor's house for, for nearly a year. Uh, Bob Arnold sadly is, is, uh, is no longer with us. Uh, he was Robert Arnold, the actor. He's in the Countdown episode of Blake 7. He's not Bob Arnold who was in The Archers. They're two different actors. Uh, the Bob I knew acted as Robert Arnold. Um, uh, and, and we have to mention Jacqueline Stanbury, who doesn't make the credits at all, who was a maid Mary in episode one. And, they, and episode one was overrunning, so they cut, they cut the one scene that she was in. Uh, I don't know anything about her other than the fact that she was nearly in Doctor Who and then wasn't. Um, or they cut her lines anyway. Um, Uh, I think Lynx is such a convincing creature. He stands in quite a sexy way. Um, I don't know, and I'm, I'm a totally heterosexual man, but I think there's something about the way that 
Lynx holds himself. That's quite. It's it's the it's the it's the one leg forward and one leg slightly back, um, and maybe it's the maybe it's the leather costume. Maybe that's it. Says 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 me in my I'm wearing my birthday shirt and a rather garish kerchief. I was given many, and I will learn to love them all. Um, <laughs> he's got hairy ears. He's got Dennis Healy's eyebrows. I love that because they're real and they don't draw attention to themselves the designer's not going oh look at this the designer is augmenting it with with clever little touches and i believe the skin i believe that that is skin and they are the, the mouth you get a performance and it's a brilliant performance and he invests the creature with a real personality and he's got i talked about this when we did Sontaran experiment he's got He's an Australian who's doing RP, and it, so it means it's a slightly compromised diction. Um, my ship's frequency, so it, it, yeah, it's, which makes it unique um, because it's this weird synthesis of the two. Um, and it's a neat idea, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's it's weird. I don't quite buy the idea that. Um, uh, you haven't got enough you, you, you haven't, you're not quite equipped to take off but you are equipped to travel or at least or at least yeah to travel forward in time with enough solidity to be able to steal some snatch some scientists it, 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 it seems to me if you have that technology that this that this this plan is sort of unnecessary but it, it, it but I don't care I don't care. I only say that just because I, 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 otherwise I'd talk about John Pertwee's green jacket. Um, uh, I, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me that, 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 that the plot doesn't quite hang for me in a way. Because what it gives us is this wonderful um, uh, sort of parallel storyline of 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 links arming these two idiots and their stupid men um with gradually more advanced weapons so that's quite a wheeze for the story that is quite a wheeze you have the you know you have the robot knight um whose arms are clearly coming out of his sides not his shoulders because he's you know he's tall it's clever um uh and, and and now he's giving them you know guns and and and, and the sort of fascination that that links has with this Sort of little war game that he plays that he doesn't do with any sort of glee, which I like. Um, some, you know, sometimes villains can enjoy themselves too much. To him, it's 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 a you know it's a sort of it's a, it's a diversion. He's not he, he's not particularly enjoying himself. Um, uh, but he said, does say he says it would amuse me to think of Angle, but he's not he's not a cackling villain. Uh, he's he's a terse, functional guy trying to do a thing and while he's doing it you know has this sideline in, uh, in uh, arming thickos <laughs> yeah tomorrow yeah he'll be feeding the crows yeah feeding the crows. yes I am I always worried about things like that. Uh, the fact that behind Sarah and Hal, you know, is obviously you know white studio backdrop because 
you know they can't put the sky in or whatever you know a, a background in but um it was televisual grammar you, you knew what they were driving at and you accepted it um oh, you know, I'll, I'll be saying that sort of thing today blue in the face so it's almost totally redundant <laughs> so yeah thanks for listening to that a thing i've just said that i then immediately followed up by saying it's pointless um oh that's the other thing is of course this is january the second i mean it doesn't really count as january the second anymore when i'm recording this so yesterday we found out that john bishop who i've known for about 20 years and gigged with for 20 years uh is now a part of doctor who's rich history it's really weird now watching the show where you know people i've rubbed shoulders with people i know and then he, he texted me afterwards when i texted him um you know are now part of this thing that uh, you know for all my involvement with i've never i've never you know i've never actually been been in uh so it's 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 a, it's a strange and uh bittersweet experience uh i'm delighted for john he's a top fella uh, and one of the best comedians I've ever worked with. He's such a good comic. And he's, uh, you know, an earthy and very natural actor, which I like, which I think Doctor Who needs in its uh, in its companion figures because they, they ground the drama. Um, and we've got a new companion in this. That's, is that, that's clearly not John Pertwee in this rather nice long shot that uh, uh, it, uh, uh, director Alan Bromley, who again I haven't mentioned, uh, uh, and the episode has finished. Poor old director Alan Bromley. Um, oh gosh, I, I didn't talk about the episode then much, but I have to just, I have to just trust my instincts, don't I, and just go with, uh, with whatever's on my mind. Um, oh, I went up Partridge Avenue. That's right. <laughs> uh, Hal, Jeremy Bullock, Anna June Brown. Gosh, she's she's. She must be in her nineties now, mustn't she? Is she? Oh, as is Donald Pelmere. So, uh, Mark Boyle, Kronos himself, is the fighter ranger. Oh uh, yes, Peckforton Castle, uh, just up the road, is a. It's been a great location. I like all these. Everyone gets a single credit, a single caption credit. Alan Bromley, I must tell you about him next week. Uh so. But in talking about that and getting slightly distracted, uh, uh, and having played my, I've got to now try and pause the episode three. Um, having played my Lynx Joker, I think much of what I talked about then was uh, Lynx. Um, so what in that? Well, I mean, it's it's going to be a bit boring, isn't it? But I think it's going to... I think it's going to have to... You know, am I just going to do the characters? Um, but I, I I mean, I love Iangron and Bloodaxe. Um, I, I, I loved Iangron's reaction to to um, seeing Lynx's face. So you also fair across to us. Have we had that... Have we had the line where I, because of course I talk through it, I have to, which means it's very difficult for me to sometimes, you know, pick up on everything. Um, I know uh, uh, Iron God has that lovely line where he describes the Doctor as a long-shanked rascal with a mighty nose. 
which Terence Dix always said that people quoted him as being a brilliant typical Robert Holmes line but Terence said it was actually one of his and I, I, that wouldn't surprise me because Terence is a much funnier writer than he's given credit for um, and we always know him as the genius script editor and we know Robert Holmes is capable of the, the most brilliant and funny lines but Terence is funny too um, uh, anyway um, I took my eye off the ball there slightly um, but Oh, scientists in pyjamas in a castle. No, I think I'm going to go for... Because I think sometimes I, you know, choose a tiny thing like a prop and then and forget to mention a really brilliant character. So I'm going to, uh, with the promise of looking out for more next week rather than saying which members of the cast I lent things to <laughs> or whose house I've been to, uh, I'm going to choose two characters, the actors of whom I've never met and whose houses I've never been to but Bloodaxe and Irongron, uh, I think, are super duper. Uh, I think they're brilliant characters. I think they're a great double act. I think they're very funny, but they're also plausible threats, and they're judged perfectly because they're stupid, but you, but never to the point where you don't take them seriously as protagonists and as as a danger to the Doctor. So Irongron and Bloodaxe, because I love them, and uh, I would have chosen them for 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 for, for one of the episodes. So I'm going to choose them for this one. I'm not sure Tom's going to have chosen them for this one. Just, no, let's see what he's chosen. I may have squandered my lead. And episode two doesn't disappoint either. It's all just fantastic, isn't it? I mean, maybe the robot's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, it looks very good with its head cut off, though, I've got to say. I'm absolutely sure that that would be a deal breaker for a New Who fan. It's about the only thing which is coming close to it. Um, I think I admire most about this episode is just how well plotted it all is. The business with Rubish's glasses is brilliant, means that he can be an active force, and it's all been carefully seeded in from episode one. Uh, and then we have the situation where the Doctor is apparently being held prisoner and is subdued. At the same time, Sarah Jane Smith, who's only just met him, suspects that he is the bad guy, and now the raid on the castle is going to unwittingly bring the Doctor back into the fold as a force for good again. It's really brilliantly constructed. There's so much else here going on to enjoy that great high-angle shot of the fight at the end, making it probably not obvious that that wasn't John Pertwee. But uh, it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it's the plotting. Holmes's plotting is just fantastic here. Absolutely brilliant. Episode three. Yeah, I'll take that. That was good. Uh, and uh, yes, I'd forgotten. Funny enough, I nearly said I'm not a great fan of the robot because I'm not a great fan of the robot. Um, and I wish I had now because it shows that Tom and I are still very much in accord. It is it is the one, I think, weak point for me. And I think it's because his arms are clearly coming out of his sides and they built his shoulder up. That means that they can chop his head off. It's actually uh, an efficient uh, and, and smart piece of costuming to pull off the you know, the trick of chopping his head off. Anyway, it just does flap about a bit. Um, and it moved, yeah. Anyway, this is the accentuate the positive thing. I just thought it was interesting that the, the one thing I'd have put as a as a chink in uh, uh, the armour of uh, the Time Warrior is the is the, the guy in armour. Um, but I'll take the plotting. And I forgot, yes, the thing where Sarah actually, yeah, it is a nice wheeze that Sarah thinks the Doctor's up to no good. And yeah, the whole the whole thing they're doing now is they're not rescuing him. They've come to capture him because they think he's a baddie, which is a brilliant sort of almost farcical 
thing. But I didn't choose that. I chose Iron Gone and Blood Axe. So it's one all uh, to me and Tom. Uh, and I'm gonna. I'm getting tired, but I can't miss the opportunity to. Um, uh, yeah, to, to 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 watch episode three tonight. You won't get it. it. Makes no difference to you. You will get that on the next episode. So uh, uh, for now, thanks very much. But do join me when I release the next episode, which is the last episode of Doctor Who to be broadcast before I was born. Well, welcome, everybody. That will have been the voice of our special guest, Tom Selinsky, who has chosen the Time Warrior. And by a massive coincidence, he sent me his thoughts on the Time Warrior uh, over the period of Christmas 2020. Oh, that old riot. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it struck me that, oh, well, that's pretty much it was it was broadcast, uh, you know, Christmas and New Year. Uh, 1973-74 and the reason that's interesting and appealing to me and human beings do like seeing patterns in things that aren't there is that I'm recording this on the back end of January the 2nd 2021 we're full of hope at this point in the year that the pestilence will go and we'll all live happily ever after you might be listening to this in the wasteland of, <laughs> of corpses and uh, unused masks um, and slightly embarrassed um, Daily Mail headlines um, but speaking to you from the past it's we're, we're currently doing we're doing okay we just had a slightly quiet Christmas but it's also my birthday um, as I say when I record this not when you listen to this so don't send me anything <laughs> not that you were going to but uh, the reason I know about the Time Warrior and my birthday is because a few years ago I decided to work out something I didn't know which I'd have thought would be something I'd have uh, I'd have tried to discover very early on and that is uh, what my birth story is and it's this so this episode three of the Time Warrior which we're just about to watch is the last episode of Doctor Who to be broadcast before I was born yes so that means it holds no special footnote in Doctor Who history at all. But for me, it's a little thing. <laughs> and uh, enough of my little thing. In, we're going to press play to watch the, 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 the last episode uh, of Doctor Who before the world changed forever. And uh, its anorak quotient uh, uh, <laughs> went up just a little bit. Um, uh, on account of three, two, one, press play. Now, uh, so here we are, the time tunnel. Well, it is. It's still a bit weird to me to see John Pertwee in the Tom Baker title sequence, or part of it, and and his full figure. Though they did do it with his arms because he was very good. Nobody can enter a room and spread his arms out wide and not look like a Burke that isn't John Pertwee who just sometimes somehow makes it work it's, 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 that, it's like Larry Turner said of him in that uh, 30 years in the TARDIS documentary you know no, nobody can pull off frilly shirts apart from John Pertwee and Jimi Hendrix and who am I to argue with fashion guru Larry Turner I like the little smile that uh, how the archer shoots Sarah Jane there he thinks she's a feisty lady um, I promise to talk about the episode more 
I got a little bit introspective last week, or, or five minutes ago, uh, depending on whether you're my time or not. Um, I make no apologies. Uh, this, 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 this is me talking in front of an episode of Doctor Who, unscripted, unplanned, unresearched. Um, it's a slight, the, the cliffhanger's a, a slight hodgepodge, isn't it? Because it cuts back to quite far back t- into the end of episode two and then misses out some bits as well, which suggests a timing problem or um, something. And Tom, Tom mentioned this last week, the, the wide shot. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, and it's a bit of a peril of Pauline thing because... Uh, I. That they've they've given us Hal and Sarah, which they didn't have before, uh, which means that they are in place to save the Doctor, which we didn't know in the cliffhanger last week. So that's a bit of a cheat. Uh, oh, I like a flaming torch. Uh, that's a lovely shot, isn't it? I I think I've been there in that. Yeah, I think I've been in that. Have I been in that bit? I don't know. I'm not going to start playing uh, geography. I have been to Peckforton Castle. I, but but I don't know if I was near that particular wall. Um, uh, top marks to the costumes. I, I like the costumes uh, uh, of of uh, it's, it's James Aitchison, isn't it? Well, he's an Oscar nominee for goodness sake. Um, Professor, Ru- I do like Professor Rubish, uh, and there was a great picture of him in the. In the Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who archives that I had, I bought it from my grandparents. That's right, in Newbury and Berkshire. I took it to school with me, and it was why I read it over and over and over again. Uh, and it was in the days when the archives just gave you the plot, pretty much. But you know, the pictures would have captions, so I knew that Donald Pelmy had played Professor Rubish, so that was something. Uh, there were no pictures of uh, Iron God and Blood Axe, though, unfortunately. I love all of Iron Gron's lines, uh, and this 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 brilliant uh, sort of bargain of necessity that they have with them, which Iron Gron completely misjudges, and poor old Bloodax, who let's not forget is probably a filthy murderer, a horrible man, but John J. Carney makes him so likable because he's so stupid, but. He's not incompetent, you know, and he and he he does the things that he's asked to do, but but he's stupid, uh, uh, but likably so. And John J. Carney is in. He's in the Blake Seven episode that uh, Colin Baker is in. He's Colin Baker's villainous sidekick in that. Um, he's in a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah, he had a good, decent career, is he? But he had those sorts of. He had sort of quite sort of good sort of character actor uh, sort of slightly thuggish looks uh, yes stow it's interesting how things like stowaway become a you know because Adric was a stowaway Zoe was a stowaway it's a thing that companions did was they say you know we don't we don't sort of accept that as a we don't have that as a as a sort of thing that people do a bit like you know getting knocked out people don't get with with the blow on the head it was just sort of stuff that we took in our stride in dramas people were stowaways um i suppose that's a hangover from sort of adventure series with actual boats and things um 
Sarah, let's. I've not talked now. I never talk about the regulars enough in this podcast. I don't think because I think I take them for granted, and because they're not obviously not unique to this story. The way Sarah is weaved into this story is brilliant. The fact that she thinks the Doctor is the bad guy is a great sort of comedy of mistaken identity and a, and a great way to introduce their dynamic. Um, and the fact that she enters on a lie, pretending to be somebody that she isn't. Um, <laughs> I love how John P John Pertwee's Doctor is with... Um, sort of the gentry. We should hate him for it because you know. Because but but you know, I I like when he's a nobleman of Draconia who knows how to behave in a court. Uh, and but but he, but it means he is he is quite he is quite sort of feudal. He is a bit sort of oh no, maybe he's just polite. And I like politeness. But when you're polite to people who preside over a very unjust system, uh, it does make you seem like you're sucking up to the rich people. But I like, I think John Pertwee does it so well, how he uh, ingratiates is the wrong word because that suggests obsequiousness, but how well he fits into sort of courtly uh, etiquette. Uh, I don't know why he calls it, actual disposal, uh, uh, whereas, whereas, whereas you can sort of, I'm not sure you can imagine Tom Baker being quite the same. Um, although he again his doctor knows how to talk to people it's a clever thing that the script writers do is that they you know can keep the doctor the doctor the doctor is very good at communicating with with people on their in their plane because the doctor is so well traveled uh, and, and and knows how to negotiate his way around a conversation uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, this is the episode where they have the the big old fight in the uh, uh, in the castle, which is a great sequence. Alan Bromley, the director. Right, I had a book called um, Me, the book about me. <laughs> and what made you go onto the stage and become a stand-up comedian? Where you spend almost every evening uh, getting people to look at you and listen to the things you say. And what what will you do when you can't do that anymore? I'll do a podcast where the only person talking is me. Um, God, that's I'm insufferable. Um, uh, but somebody wants, you know, I, I think the mistake sometimes people make is that um, uh, people who talk a lot like the sound of their own voice, not necessarily just trying to block out all the other noises and people that do stand up think they're funny. No, no, people who think they're funny don't need to try and prove it every single night. Um, uh, you know, it's a confidence trick. Um, but I had this book, uh, I, I got this book as a, uh, I think in a school prize giving thing or something. And, and what you do is, it was by Giles Brandreth, but it was a, you fill in stuff about yourself. So it was like a sort of personal inventory, but it was done and it was a bit of fun. Uh, and one of the, the pages was, you know, if you, if you wanted to have a different name, or, or what's your favourite first name? And my favourite first name was Alan. I don't know, Alan was, names like Alan and Mike and Ian were quite cool when I was, and I love names like that. Um, I'm surprised I didn't choose Ian, and because I, I like the name Ian Marta. I like people who are called Ian, um, uh, and I liked people with moustache. I like Midgeous thin moustache. I wanted to be called Ian or Alan and have a thin moustache. And my moustache has never been very strong until very recently. Where now it's too much of it. Um, so I chose the name 
Alan, uh, and I chose the, and it said, what's your favourite surname? And I like the surname Pertwee. But then it said, and what name would you like to be called? And I thought, well, I'm not going to be called Alan Pertwee. I can't carry off Pertwee. Per- I, like, I like the name Pertwee, but I wouldn't bestow it upon me. Um, you know, it's, it's like, I wouldn't call myself um, Stud Muffin Cleopatra, you know, because it just it would be incongruous when I shuffled in. So I, I couldn't be a Pertwee. So they said, what was your... And I think you were supposed to put your favourite first name, favourite surname, and then when it said, you know, so what would you like to be called? You'd combine those. And I would have been Alan Pertwee. Uh, but no, so I put, no, I'd like to be called Alan Brumley. And I don't know that I knew the name, but I think it must have just sunk in. I must have seen it written down in, you know, either a magazine or a book or somewhere. Because I think I only discovered later that Alan Brumley was the name of a Doctor Who director. And this weird... Uh, uh, that he's, he's not used by the same producer. A lot of directors, you, you know, either stay with, you know, used over and over again by the same producer or they're, you know, in-house directors who stretch quite a long way across the series and are, you know, great, uh, great purveyors of Doctor Who. And then you get the odd one, like Gerald Blake, who does a Troughton story, Abominable Snowman, and a uh, Tom Baker, The Invasion of Time, and Alan Bromley, who does a uh, John Pertwee, um, the first story of season 11, last of block 10, The Time Warrior, uh, and then Nightmare of Eden, two different beasts you couldn't have, uh, except for the fact that David Dacre is in both of them. Um, and Alan Bromley, of course, had a terrible time on Nightmare of Eden. Um, but I remember reading an interview with Elizabeth Sladen and she said she thought that Alan Bromley was the wrong director for Doctor Who and he'd been a producer. He'd had a great career uh, as, a, as a producer at the BBC, worked on Out of the Unknown. Um, and his wife was the actress June Ellis, who is in the film of Quatermass and the Pit. Uh, 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 but but Alan Bromley was somebody I think we all assumed was quite long dead, and then nobody ever interviewed him. I think about Doctor Who. Who knows if he would have given one because Nightmare of Eden was a bit of a disaster. But he, I think he actually only died in the early nineties, and we just didn't. I think did nobody get in touch? I don't know. I must ask Richard Bignall about that because I'm sure some people would have tried. But it seemed to me that we just sort of. He just sort of got overlooked. I think people may... Because he'd been a senior producer and then his directing became came at the sort of end of his career. I think maybe it was just one of those terrible things where people assumed he died. Um, and that's happened, you know. And then you suddenly read and go, God, they were alive all the time. That's happened to me with a couple of Quatermass's actors. Uh, uh, actors. Uh, uh, um, uh, but I, I, think, I think The Time Warrior is really nicely directed. I think this... This battle is done brilliant. I love this location stuff. And they really make use of the castle. It's, a, it's really worth the trip up north. Um, uh, and and this, this, is done, this is done very, very well. Um, and it looks like there's a lot of people there, which there are. Um, but of course, and the Doctor's doing a, a, a trick to show there are a lot of people there by just putting, you know, hats on mannequins. So that's, that's quite nice that, you know, the television production has to sort of make you think there are loads of people there and the doctor also has to make you think there are loads of people there these sulfur explosions are brilliant i love all that yellow smoke one blows up really perilously close to a bloke at one point coming up very soon and they're, they're they do explosions very well in the perch we hear in the 80s explosions suddenly get quite tense that's not look at that that's a brilliant explosion next to some poor guy he gets his helmet blown off but yeah explosions get a bit tinsely in the 80s and i think it was, it was one example of, 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 of Doctor Who where we sort of regressed a bit where, and, and the Sontarans are another um, 
you know, where the, the design got progressively worse uh, as time went on. Uh, that's, that, I think that also happened with explosions in Doctor Who. Uh, the, the explosions in the Pertwee era are great. I think those ones in Carnival of Monsters on the Marshes. Um, but I like those superior stink bombs. That's Pertwee tossing them over his shoulder like that. That's great. I, I never talk about Pertwee. I, sort of, I do take Pertwee for granted because he's, he's just tall and John Pertwee and he's just Doctor Who. He's just the Doctor. Um, uh, you, you just... Oh, he's... He's just doing the, the, the Donald Wolfit thing there. Oh, my... That's uh, a wonderful... Uh, nod to those sort of actors who'd give a that was acting in uh, in, 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 in hammy stage times if I can go you know the actor who played King Lear before the storm scene would give, a, give as long an introduction as possible um, I'm, I'm sure there was a story was it, was it Nigel Davenport was was, was playing it and, 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 and do the blow wind and crack your cheeks and he was doing it from the from the wings to come on and uh, and and uh, I think somebody said to him, "Ah, oh, yeah, but Charles Lawton started in his dressing room. Uh, look at Kevin Lindsay. He looks fantastic. I love the fact that Lynx just goes, no, mate, you were crap as well. Uh, uh, and the fact that these two face off so brilliantly with each other. Um, but I totally buy the relationship. I don't like it when baddies don't get on and are always double crossing each other and I've said before in this podcast when, when a baddie kills a baddie it actually annoys me um, b- because it's sort of like well the hero doesn't even need to be there then um, threaten me once more and I will destroy I love this and look at the way he stands the way when he knocks it down he sort of has his arm ready for action uh, but Iron Gron knows not to attack him but he will still do a parting shot when he's out of the room or uh, oh no he doesn't he just does a, a look but I, I buy all of that and I don't mind that these two are against each other because it, it sort of fuels the dynamic I still buy that they need each other I still buy that even though they argue um, they, they are uneasy allies I, it's, a, it's a relationship I totally buy and they're both quite larger than life characters but played totally plausibly they are they make sense um, within the scale of their own sort of pitch and performance Pertwee was doing the chucking thing there wasn't he yeah he's he's he's, he's a bit of a he is a bit of a yeah well if, if this is what they did if this is what the gentry do here that's i'll do it as well um whereas i th- I, I think i wouldn't throw the chicken bone um uh, um but yeah it's I, I think alan bromley does a very good job he casts it very well the fact that you've got alan rowe you, you know, playing the sort of dullest part, and he's such a good actor, Alan Rowe. Um, uh, and yes, did I mention? Yes, he's he was Jeffrey Belden's partner. I discovered that because I, I once went to London and I went to a Swiss Cottage Library and I spent most of my time in London as a country boy, um, looking through Spotlight uh, to see which actors were still around. And I noticed that Alan Rowe and Jeffrey Belden. Um, were credited as taking each other's photograph and I thought oh why something's going on there and uh, yeah they were they were partners for many years and I was slightly annoyed when the Guardian did uh, Jeffrey Bailden's obit they didn't mention Alan Rowe and I actually sent them a thing and went 
he hadn't mentioned his partner of 50 years and they went oh well we we asked the cat weasel society and they uh, they said he, he you know he was he was you know he didn't have a partner i said well maybe the cat weasel society <laughs> are perhaps interested in that side of things but i think you know um uh, uh yeah so sad so which i think sad that uh, um and this is recent do you know what i mean i can i mean i'm from the days when this is your life when uh, you know uh, if 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 the guest was a, a, a an actor um, you know he might he, they might be there with uh, I'm sitting next to you where the wives normally sit is your mother and behind you is your close personal friend and you go oh come on um, even even we could you know but it, it wasn't said this is in my lifetime ah here we are now Steve Brunswick is one of the worst actors to have ever been in Doctor Who as the Sentry. And standing next to him is an excellent actor called Andy Abrahams, uh, because I because uh, these all these actors were were got from here, um, from up north, and they were all hired as extras. But one of them was going to get lines, uh, and I said to Andy, and I remember saying to Andy, I worked with Andy at the Royal Exchange. I said, I'm surprised you've never done a Doctor Who. He said, No, no, I did one that was at Peckforton Castle, and I went, Oh God, he's not the guy who's with the craps, yeah. And I suddenly flashed because Andy now looks a bit like Arthur Cox Cully in the uh, in the in the Dominators. He's he's sort of balding and he's, he's got a moustache now. Arthur Cox doesn't have a moustache in the Dominators, but he has had for most of his career. Um, and, and Andy has got very much the sort of Arthur Cox look of, about it. Um, but he's credited on paperwork here as Andrew Abrahams, but he's not credited in the thing, so I wouldn't have known. Um, although I do know that one of the extras in this is Ray Dunbobbin. Uh, who went on to play Ralph in Brookside, who was a regular and quite a main part. Um, so yeah, the, 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 the extras were plucked from, from you know, working actors here up north, but we got a chance to work on a BBC production. So, uh, you know, I think perhaps, you know, do, doing extra work was, uh, which an, an actor normally, you know, tries not to do, I think was, uh, was something that they were keen to do because it was working with the BBC and Doctor Who and, you know, some decent work close to home, whatever. Um, but and Andy's had a great career. He's done loads. Look, uh, he's been in Life on Mars. He's done that's Foresight, so the newer Foresight. So he's done loads of telly, recent, you know, recent telly. Um, brilliant at crosswords. Lovely man. Proper genial old school actor. And he was in this Midsummer Night's Dream that I was in at the Royal Exchange. And I, I said that he's playing one of the fairies. The, the fairies were all sort of old, old, played by old people. Uh, so he came, and they all came quite late into the process. So I got chatting to Andy anyway. So I surprised you never did a Doctor Who. And he said, "Oh no, I, I did this one." And I said, "So, so, I said, hang on, but Andy, how come? What, how, what happened with this guy?" And he said, "Well, we were just all at lunch, and they said, oh, we need one of you to do a couple of lines,' and they just picked somebody um, who, who was Steve Brunswick, who's not done anything else. Um, whereas some of the other actors there are actors that." went on or already had pretty decent careers so why steve brunswick the century who is shocking but i sort of like he's almost heroically bad <laughs> um and he's standing next to a really able actor really good actor andy abrahams um so that amuses me um uh <laughs> I shall leave an hour. Yeah, and I love the fact that he goes, yeah, and I'm going to go uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make any bones about it. I'm going to blow your castle up uh, and I'm not going to wait. 
uh, I love the Rubish not being able to see uh, sort of subplot. It gives him lots of dotty stuff to do, but he proves very able. I love Rubish. I think he's great. I uh, read a couple of reviews which, which have been quite disparaging about it. I think he plays the part brilliantly. I think he's good fun. Um, and yeah, I love, I'm loving it in the book where, you know, he, he makes his own, uh, he makes his own eyeglass and he's got, he, he's the one that thwacks links on the probic vent, isn't he? Uh, which I think is brilliant. I love all of that. Um, I'm very fond of Professor Rubish, but I've got to be careful not to just, not just to choose characters, uh, or actors. Uh, I don't know why I've imposed that rule. I just think because this could get pretty boring. He says, <laughs> could already be pretty boring uh i'm very sorry about that um but um so yeah i know i do i do like rubish a lot uh oh and I, lo I love the cliffhanger to part three as well is that now oh not yet is it surely not yet um it's, but this shot is the cliffhanger. Sorry, I've been banging on. No, because we've got to have, because we, yeah, I, and I, I, I mean, if a monster's to have a weakness, the probic vent is quite a good one. Makes sense to me about the charging at the, the back. And I like the way that the Sontarans rationalise it. it. means we always have to face our enemy. I, I, I like the way they cover up their own weakness in that regard and, and make a sort of virtue of it, but only a virtue in terms of, you know, George or. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it is, it is going to come. And what I loved about this episode ending in the book and the way that they do it here is that unusually, instead of shoot them, shoot them now, it's he fires and the doctor's face goes red. And I, I remember reading in the book, going, he actually fires? Well, I bet they don't actually do that in the TV version. And they do. And the, and the music sort of kicks in as he's raising his arms. You go, well, they're going to cut. They're going to cut. No, because they normally cut before a shot is fired. You know, and next week, oh, he gets knocked out before he gets to make the shot. I love that cliffhanger. Can I have two? Can I have two cliffhangers? Because it, it is a brilliant cliffhanger. And especially as the Doctor has made a really... Century Steve Brunswick. I've... Uh, do you know, he probably lives down the road. <laughs> I hope he's happy. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to know his story. Um, he's a part of Doctor Who. He's a part of the legend. He, uh, you know, I, I bow down, even though I, I, I mock. I'm sorry, but I, no, I think, I think it's fair enough. He's terrible. Um, uh, <laughs> but I still love him. I still love everyone involved in Doctor Who. So, um... I think I am going to go for that cliffhanger just because it's a very special... And I wouldn't have, as a kid, I wouldn't have necessarily thought of episode one's cliffhanger as being particularly special. But I definitely thought of episode three's as being special. Um, one means has meant more to me as it goes on. And I think, you know... Uh, well, I explained about episode one. But I, I do I do love that cliffhanger. I love the face-off. But the Doctor presents quite a good case to Lynx. And Lynx just goes, well, I've listened... And my answer is to kill you. Um, I love the bluntness of Lynx, the practicality of Lynx. You know, nasty, brutish and short, not just uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in appearance. Um, it's Hobbes, isn't it? Nasty, brutish and short. Um, uh, but also... Um, uh, nasty, brutish and short 
in in the way that he conducts himself in his worldview in his conversation um Yeah, so I'm going to choose the cliffhanger. I'm going to choose the cliffhanger. Uh, let's see what Tom Selinski has chosen as his thing from episode three. More good stuff in episode three. I don't think I've spoken much about the sets so far. They look amazing and the great interior sets on videotape really help, I think, to smooth over the transition between video and film that can be so distracting here it's almost never distracting. Uh, we get uh, one of Pertwee's funny voices, always a pleasure. Uh, but I think the thing that really stands out for me in this episode, which is true of the whole story, but really stood out for me here, is how good the dialogue is. Robert Holmes is really just having a blast. Uh, Longshank Rascal with a mighty nose, obviously, is a very famous line. The fact that Iron calls Link's toad face, sort of prefiguring Ace's habit of giving everybody funny nicknames. Not even a sparrow will fill its beak at one peck. All this wonderful Cod Shakespearean stuff. Uh, the Doctor quotes Thomas Hobbes uh, and uh, calls <laughs> Time Mod's Galactic Ticket Inspectors. We get to hear Gallifrey for the first time. The dialogue here is just fantastic. Everybody sounds like themselves and all of the things that people say are interesting and funny and move the plot on and reveal character. It's a real object lesson. Yeah, I'll take that. And I, I would, I think, in my defence, I'm at a disadvantage because when it comes to dialogue, because I have to talk over it all. And in fact, I'd invoked, hadn't I, Longshank Rascal with the Mighty, mighty Nose uh, last episode in case I'd missed it, because um, it's quite hard to be on the ball. Um, and and it's and it's from this week. Um, and yeah, Toad Face and yeah, all of that stuff. I do, yeah, uh, and, and perhaps. That would have been a more appropriate choice, but I didn't make it and Tom did. And that's what makes it beautiful. And what means that my initial optimism that I was going to do well on this one has quickly dwindled. Oh, I started so well and it was downhill, which is appropriate for the story that is charting uh, my journey from birth to here. I started so well, but it's been downhill ever since. But um, look, I'm very tired, so I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to save episode four. For another day but because episode four 47 years ago hasn't been on yet it is on uh, 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 in a few days time uh, and and 47 years ago episode three has just been on and then I was born so I've got up to my birth point in Doctor Who's history tonight uh, and as I say I start, if you've been listening since episode one I I was feeling a bit melancholy. Um, no biggie, just uh, it's what you sometimes happens to you when you're a 47-year-old man. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen if you're a 47-year-old woman. I just don't know what it's like to be a 47-year-old woman. Um, I'm speaking purely from, and I'm sure it happens to 35-year-olds and 20, but I know for a fact, I'm just talking from my own experience, you know, it happens as a forties, and you just got to you just got to roll with it. I'm not uh, uh, I'm not complaining about it. I'm, I don't expect any special attention because of it, um, but I think you have to acknowledge it and do something about it. And what I do about it is that I put on Doctor Who, and what I do about currently is put on Doctor Who and talk to you good people about it because that's currently what I'm doing when I watch Doctor Who uh, a lot of the time. So thanks for uh, giving me somebody to talk to. 
uh, and to uh, uh, leave um, this process feeling much more chipper than I did when I started it. I hope I've had the same effect on you. It would be awful if you listen to this quite start off quite cheerful and end up thing wishing you could. that'd be like uh, the, the guy in airplane starts yabbering on and people you're there listening to this podcast you self-immolate or you shoot yourself or whatever um yeah <laughs> the internet has had to ban a podcast because too many people who listen to it lost the will to live i hope that hasn't happened um it's it's all it's 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 a humble hope but uh, yes, I hope this hasn't hasn't left you um, uh, losing the will to live. Uh, um, so uh, thanks for being here. Um, uh, I, uh, I will uh, I will see you next time to see how they get out of that amazing cliff. I still stand by choosing that cliffhanger. The doctor got shot in the face. Um, I can't beat that. Welcome back. A bit of time has passed between episode three and four. Uh, in Doctor Who terms, a week. In my terms, a lifetime, or the beginning of one. But in today's terms, for me, saying hello to you, uh, since episode three, which I recorded on my birthday, three weeks have passed. I haven't watched any Doctor Who for a happy times and places. I took a bit of time off. So... Uh, I do hope I don't repeat myself because I can't remember what I said in the previous episodes. Uh, let's see what happens, shall we? Uh, welcome. Nice to see you. I hope you have lined up your part four of The Time Warrior. Marvellous Doctor Who story, which we're going to watch in three, two, one, go. And a dramatic pause, and there we go. Oh, it's nice to be back. I just had a bit of a, a rest, I, and I was planning to do this earlier. Look, I've regular viewers, if you're watching the video, uh, uh, audio people, you're going to have to imagine it. Let your imaginations work. I haven't lost remote control because I've tied it to the Blu-ray player. Um, but then I've spent ages because I'm recording on an Apple product. And, of course, Apple products are all compatible, uh, except for when they bring a new one out. It all has different ports to plug in. You need all sorts of different adapters to make the old cables work with the new thing, which I think, I mean, is an executable offence and will be when I rule the universe. Look at that costume. I love the cliffhanger. You actually see his face go red. There's a, there's a, a slight pause to give Sarah time to get there, but I don't, it works. It works. The Doctor is hit. Uh, that costume is great. Uh, I, I, a man, a scientist in his pyjamas collapses to the floor. Never mind your Yeti on the loo in Tootingbeck, which is what John Pertwee always used to advocate as uh, the ideal Doctor Who thing, an incongruous thing in a familiar setting. Well, the incongruity here is a familiar thing. The man in his pyjamas, and he's in a medieval castle surrounded by technical bumpf. And then we get a close-up of Lynx with his hairy eyebrows, a very malleable face. I love this. I think it's I think it's a really quality production uh, with a brilliant performance inside a superb mask. Uh, and then the batty old Professor Rubish gets his moment to see the Sontarans have a probic vent. I bet on Sontar, when, when they bring out their new charging equipment, they don't bring it out with a different jack to stick in the back and they have to get an adapter, otherwise they won't work. Because that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? And that would, that would belie the idea of, uh, of convenience 
which is what all this is supposed to be about. Um, don't even get me started on the doors here. These are modern doors, so they have three locks, so that means three times more likely to break. Anyway. Uh, oh! Um, they've already got uh, a nice little bond these two I, I think also when I do this these I'm I'm in serious danger because I sort of it's my tendency to sort of mine for arcana of uh, I, I tend to always overlook the obvious so I've yet to nominate Robert Holmes as my favorite thing uh, or, or, or the person playing the doctor or the companion and you'd think Sarah Jane would get a, a, a look in here because it's her first story and it's a it's a confident uh, debut but I think Sarah has has better moments that I might keep in store um, for future episodes. And I've also got to be careful that I don't just pick characters or actors, but I've said that a million times. Um, look, um, I don't know, if you're watching, uh, we've, we've, got a, we've got a bit of disco lighting going on here because I put on the disco lights. We've got a disco light because I live with a very strange woman. Um, uh He's there's a lovely sort of look of uh, slight fear and immense stupidity from uh, <laughs> John J. Carney as uh, uh, as as Blood Axe, uh, but doesn't it doesn't he go? I'm busy, and you go, oh, no, that's obviously John Pertwee. That's not that's a as a busy is a very John Pertwee word. Have yes, I've probably mentioned at the end of last week. This is the first episode of Doctor Who transmitted. In my lifetime, I was born between episodes three and four of The Time Warrior. And I liked this story before I knew that. I actually looked it up relatively late in the day. I wasn't sure. I didn't really care, interestingly. Um, so it's something I, I had to actively sort of dig to find out because I'm not great on dates. I think I'd patted myself on the back and went, Doctor Who started the day after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, you know. <laughs> that's as far as it goes and even now if you said to me what year was that story i'd have to rack my brains and uh, and provided it wasn't you know for money or uh, you know or in the unlikely event it which would crack a, a security code on a spaceship that's about to crash into the sun <laughs> um like like that would be a thing you'd do um uh, <laughs> i um uh I'd, I'd, I'd probably get there, but I, it would take me a while. Now, there was always a thing about... Remember there was a thing in Matrix Databank in Doctor Who magazine um, about anachronistic potatoes. And then when Doctor Who was, you know, given proper uh, scholastic uh, observation, it was real that actually the anachronistic potatoes are very hard to discern. So uh, we can strike that off the goofs list, everybody. <laughs> uh Yeah, the, so the doctor, the doctor actually fits in the costume better than the robot itself did because obviously it had to have its uh, head chopped off. It's uh, yeah, it's, I think it's probably the the least uh, successful aspect of the story, the 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 android, and it's I mean it's a bit of fun, but it's yeah, uh, and you can sort of see it's you can see the doctor's face beneath the mask, but that's all right. It's the sort of thing the doctor needs to do to get out of trouble. Um, you know, disguise himself as a as a robot. It's his sort of ingenuity and thinking outside of the box. Um, but it's uh, it's it's certainly not going to be my pick of the things. Um, 
uh, I, I, and I, I've been thinking about this as well because I've picked cliffhangers twice and I've picked Iron Gron and Blood Axe and I've got to pick two things for this. Tom Salinsky's response is uh, is all fired up and bless him, I've noticed he's also recorded a shorter introduction because uh, on the later episodes I, I don't have the full introduction to the person, I usually cut it down and he's provided me with that. So aren't people good? I I'm, I'm really love the way that people have have kindly responded to this piece of frippery that I'm doing that I hope is entertaining. Good old, so, good old sword fight. Um, of course, a sword fight now is a much easier thing to do with, you know, editing and... Uh, and I, but I suppose, you know, all of these actors were well-versed in, in stage fighting, but I don't think, I'm not sure there have been many really, really good sword fights in Doc 2 because they all have to be done in, you know, in, in one take with a multi-camera uh, setup. Now, one of these kitchen wenches is Bella Emberg, uh, better known as Blunder Woman in Russ Abbott. Uh, so when I was growing up, she was very much a TV uh, mainstay. So the idea that she would uh, have an uncredited cameo appearance in Doctor Who was very exciting, you know, because one always wanted to uh, get validation for a programme that was um, uh, uh, that had a, a bad reputation, was what to... Have the Mickey taken out of it by her mates by by saying ah yeah but it's associated with this thing that we know I mean not that you know <laughs> citing Russ Abbott's Madhouse would necessarily be the conduit to a, a, a artistic affirmation that you'd require but I like the idea that a, a, a thing a part of popular culture and she was great uh, Bella, Bella Emberg she was a great sort of comedy stooge she's also been an extra in Doctor Who and the Silurians but to prove that if you stick with showbiz long enough, uh, I love the look on David Dacre's face when he, when he takes the mask off the Doctor. Um, uh, Bella Emberg eventually gets a credited role and a couple of lines in Love and Monsters, and I think is edited out of The Runaway Bride, um, but I'm not sure we've ever seen that scene. So so actually, she, it goes, it goes uh, yes, su- su- supporting role, barely seen, no credit in the classic series. Finally comes good with a lovely cameo in Love and Monsters. You go, brilliant! Bella Emberg is now part of the official Doctor Who tapestry. Come back, Bella! Uh, and then gets edited out of her final appearance. She's no longer with us now, bless her. Um, but... Uh, yeah, she's 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 the one in the the the, the background there. Um, so uh, that's that showbiz guys. Uh, I've had friends who've been. Well, I think anyone that's ever done a, a telly goes, oh, that bit that I put a lot of hard work into, the camera was looking somewhere else, or they've cut it. Um, I once did an episode of Coronation Street where the part I auditioned for was reasonable. And then when I got there, one of the other actors said, should we read through the scene? And I went, yeah. And they said a line, and I went, oh, oh no, I'm, I've got a bit more than that. And they went, oh, no, we've had some cuts. This is where the scene starts. The scene started with me leaving. <laughs> and nobody told me that showbiz. But I, I've had a mate who's turned up to a movie premiere with a girl uh, of a movie that he was in all the flashbacks and all the dream sequences. And when he introduced the girl to the director... You know, this is a date to go. This is my mate, the director of this movie, what I is in. And the director went white and went, did nobody tell you? Uh, the dream sequences and the flashbacks had all been cut. Uh, so, but my friend has had, a, has, has had a great career. It's just one of those old, uh, those old pitfalls. Um, 
Uh, good old Sarah, she's plucky, isn't she? And and you know that's that's a that's a that's a difficult ask uh, to pull off that um, you know distraction trick. Uh, but they yeah they they pulled it off. Um, and one of these extras here is George Ballantyne, who uh, was 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 a sort of perennial fixture. I think Peter Davison talks about him in 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 one of the DVDs. He was a sort of perennial fixture in uh, at the BBC, uh, often wore uh, sort of round spectacles and uh, was a sort of genial character actory type. Um, uh, oh, there he is. He's the he's the one at the control panel nearest us when uh, when uh, Ruby stuck down. Um, but he he finally gets he gets a couple of lines in Snake Dance and a credit. So again, George Ballantyne, who is in loads of Doctor Who's behind the scenes, uh, he comes good in Snake Dance as the hawker trying to sell a toy snake to Tegan at, near the end of episode one. <laughs> I do I do like I do like. Poor old Lynx, trussed up there, but he still has a bit of uh, dignity about him. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I look at that mask. That John Friedlander, I don't think I have credited, um, deserves an enormous amount of. And interesting because he was a sort of name very much associated with Doctor. He did the Davros mask and that sort of thing. And I think he was the sort of help pioneer the half mask idea where you, you still got the performance, um, but you also got the alien features. Uh, and latterly, he's not been interviewed or seen. I never knew how to get in touch with him. Uh, and he's, he's, he's somebody I would add to the list of sort of unsung heroes of Doctor Who uh, that, that uh, I think deserves perhaps a, a bit of better coverage uh, that that uh, that latterly, you know, we uh, we sort of miss. Is he on? A, he might be on a couple of the DVDs, but not enough. And I presume either because he couldn't do it always poorly, or didn't want to, or whatever. But it, uh, there was certainly no ill disposition, as far as I'm aware. Um, the the story is treading water a little here, but uh, <laughs> but it doesn't really matter because. Iron is enjoying Doctor Who and John Pertwee is all that brilliant stuff of sort of keeping his cool while these idiots are shooting at him with weapons out of their time. Uh, and, you know, John Pertwee, uh, John Pertwee's Doctor keeps his dignity uh, and remains slightly sarcastic. Bellerenberg does a lot more in this than I'd, uh, than I'd imagined. Um, get some good face pulling there. Um, I, I think in my head she was just, you know, in a couple of shots in the in the background, but she uh, she got a reasonable slice of the action there. One she got in the Runaway Bride. Um, but you, because of course, this is the beginning of the Sondheim. I I I can't remember if I finished the story about that book I got of Giles Brandreth's. I I I know I went down the path of wanting Alan Bromley to be my name, but the main reason I mention that is because the picture of Elizabeth Sladen in this costume in that Doctor Who magazine was a, a brilliant sort of half page picture of her and I she absolutely stole my heart and I fell in love with her and uh, in that book and it said who would you like to marry and I put Elizabeth Sladen I think I might may have said this in an earlier episode and um, my my sister said to my brother I think 
who's Elizabeth Sladen? He said, Sarah Jane Smith. And, and I, I did not hear the end of it. And the, the shame. What's the shame in being in love with Sarah Jane Smith? Absolutely none. And you know what? I'm still a bit in love with Sarah Jane Smith. Oh, there's Steve Brunswick <laughs> again. Uh, he's uh, he's not he's not been fired for his acting. Um, but of course, because he doesn't have a line in this, because he was a sort of promoted extra, he gets no credit this week. Uh, and is that is that Andy Abraham? Must be Andy Abrahams again. It's not very clear on the film. Um, who actually, I don't don't think I mentioned that Andy, as well as being a bit like Arthur Cox and a bit of a uh, a genial sort of fellow was a wizard crosswords and a bit of a one with the ladies i have to say which seeing as he'd got he's got about well he's got he's got 40 years on me because because uh, he was guarding iron's castle as i was brought into this world good work andy uh and again another uh, you know an, an, an extra that went on to have a, a a good acting career andy has yet to crop up in doctor who again but I hope he, I hope he does. Uh, uh, June June Brown, I when 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 I, I lent her the Time Warrior. I also did a tape of some of her other stuff. She's in a very the band episode of Doom Watch, which is called Sex and Violence, which is all about um, TV censorship, and it's largely people sitting around a table. But it comes to some very intelligent conclusions, uh, and she's a sort of mare. Mary Whitehouse type figure and and it's you know it, it it doesn't shirk on showing the reactionary side of that sort of puritanism which is very interesting uh do watch is a series I must do again uh and if you've not seen do watch it's very very interesting it's very good for spotting doctor who actors um and occasionally people say bastard uh which is very exciting Oh no! I think I misidentified George Ballantyne. George Ballantyne is the one in the uh, is the one in the cardigan. Um, yeah, Rubish has a good old uh, good old time of this and ascends up the credits this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Sontaran spaceship. I like the fact the Sontaran spaceship has always stayed the same. Yes, and that's what I was going to say. Um, I like the fact the Doctor has this sort of fan thing that repels Sontar and shooting. I buy that. That's great. That's the sort of... Ah, that's Ray Dunbobbin, who was Ralph in Brookside. So he's an extra that went on to have a, a great career. Uh, I didn't realise he got such a close-up. I think he was a. I think he wrote plays as well, uh, Dunbobbin. He's, uh, he's sadly no longer with us. Um, uh, nor is lovely Jeremy Bullock. Look at him. What a fabulous... He could have done Robin Hood. He's, I mean, he's in Robin of Sherwood as Edward of Wickham. Uh, so he looks, yeah, Lincoln Green is his thing. Uh, and, and Hal the Archer was always a bit of a sort of dashing hero figure in the, the book, certainly. And of course, of course, it's him that kills the bad guy. There was a, there was, I think it was in the Doctor Who magazine third Doctor special where they say it's, it's almost a shame that Lynx doesn't go back to war because actually the story would end the same. You know, the spaceship takes off, the castle blows up. Um, that that's kind of it. No, no. Lynx is not really defeated, uh, apart from the fact that Hal runs in at the last minute and uh, and uh, you know has the correct adapter for the slot. <laughs> um, and I I'm sort of in agreement with that. I hadn't really thought of that before. And that that magazine 
I think it was Gary Russell planted planted the seed of of that idea that actually it's a uh, it it could have been really distinctive the idea that Commander Lynx goes back to war because um, he's such a good character he sort of deserves that and they they could have brought him I suppose maybe I wonder if they would have no it wouldn't have worked if they brought him back for Santaran experiment because uh, you need Sarah to go you're the same and them to go no no we're we're clones so we can be you know we can be this cost-saving device that turns out not to be one because we always do a different mask every time um <laughs> uh, but i yeah i think i'd have been comfortable with the idea of uh of links going back to battle because he's he you actually rather like him he's because he's there's no guile to him he's he's perfectly honest and straightforward uh he doesn't betray Iron Gron. He's slightly con contemptuous of him, um, but he sort of keeps his part of the bargain. Uh, and and he, I like the fact that he's a, he's amused by Iron Gron, but he also doesn't take any rubbish from him. A uh, hundred miles from this, can I be concerned with the fate of primitives? That's the quote in the Doctor Who magazine third Doctor special because it had a quote from each story uh, ab above the review. Uh, uh, and that's a great image of, of that brilliant, brilliant costume sort of uh, at the head of the table of these, uh, you know, medie <laughs> medieval hams. Uh, and I mean that in uh, an entirely complimentary way. They're playing the parts exactly as they should, with exactly the level of gusto uh, required. Uh, I think that, that, that extra who falls asleep does so slightly too suddenly. Um, uh, and then can't quite settle. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, of course, because the Sontarans um, come back, uh, you know, they are now established as a regular fixtures in the series, popular monsters. And I think uh, Lindsay deserves some credit. I love the way he stands like that. Sort of ready. He's just gone right. How would my warrior stand ready for action? And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, th a thoughtful way of doing an alien thing. I get exactly what that is. That's the way these creatures, you know, prepare themselves for battle. But it's not defensive. It's sort of welcoming. Uh, but it's alien. But it's plausible. But it's different. It's great. Great. Lovely piece of, uh, lovely piece of kit <laughs> as a, as an actor. <laughs> And I I feel bad that I've chosen two cliffhangers involving links, and I've also chosen characters Iron Gron and Blood, Blood Axe, and I I could choose Rubish easily, and I've sort of as I say I've chosen the cliffhangers with links, but I can't not choose links as one of the things because I think Kevin Lindsay is utterly brilliant. Donald Pelmy is good. I mean, there's so, so much. Look, that's a great te uh, Terry Walsh, I'm sure, flying through the air and landing on uh, uh, well, John Pertwee landing on it back there, but uh, and, and uh, yeah, so I, Iron Gron, of course, uh, Lynx has to kill him, I guess. Um, Bladak survives and <laughs> he's probably a filthy murderer, but um, and I, I actually I think the interior of Iron Gron, uh, 
Lynx's spaceship, which you don't see that much of, is is well rendered. Keith Cheatham, the designer, it was his only it was his only gig on the show. I think he does a decent job. It's it's a shame you you get the um, just the white outside the castle windows a couple of times. That's a that's a bit of a dead giveaway. But I think generally uh, that the design is pretty decent. The uh, the, the the castle kind of works. I mean, it looks like a set. It looks like a it does look, but it's it's nicely decorated. It's got a bit of space. Um, oh, very good running from the first extra to go there. He gave it something. Um, so yeah, yep. Uh, obviously, uh, not made by Apple there. Uh, Hal's uh, arrow, and but Lynx at least gets to take off. But yeah, ah. Uh, I would have liked him to go back to war, but I suppose he hit the takeoff button too soon, so actually the spaceship doesn't take off. It it, it blows up. That's a flaw in the design, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but I suppose, but you could have had the spaceship take off and, and just, you know, absolutely total the castle as it went. Um, Why well, I'm wishing upon a star. It didn't happen. Lynx is dead. Uh, cut from the castle to some stock footage. I think that's actually pretty well done. Uh, I think it's a... a, a quarry rock face falling but but i think the cut is enough and on the dvd they replace it with some some not very good cgi explosions sorry dvd guys um but it's one of those uh examples i think where actually the original was was perfectly fine and i know barry letts hadn't been particularly happy um uh, and it's perhaps a sign that sometimes you should ignore the original production team because I think that was fine. But Barry Letts was perfectly entitled to ask for it as an alternative, which it is on the disc. But I watched the original. Uh, oh, that's flown by. I mean, I was a bit because I, I dropped the ball on this. Um, I was uh, I was a bit reluctant. I kept sort of putting it off slightly and going, have I, as I say, I've, I've sort of lost the momentum. Um, dear Jeremy Bullock, you did, uh, and as I say, I forget some. I, I, I might have said everything I've said tonight in the previous uh, three episodes. Jeremy Bullock had exquisite handwriting. Uh, it was very yes. Uh, so there we go. Links and Professor Rubish top of the credits there. Um, I love that story. I think it's the perfect blend. It's very very funny. When you're a kid. A lot of the stuff that is funny isn't funny. It's just, you know, it's that period drama. It's only as you get older that you go, oh, they've got, they've been a little bit arch with this, but we, uh, but we can enjoy that. It's deliberate, uh, slightly hokey, but without being an annoying send up. And that's that's the sort of thing that Doctor Who does does very well. Is that often uh, the Doctor doesn't land in a time period. The, the Doctor lands in a sort of genre. Uh, and he's he landed in the on the planet cod medieval there but that's okay that's okay because the actors are good enough that david dacre gives a very very funny performance but it's not a silly performance it's not stupid in his own terms iron Grun and blood axe too in their own terms they are believable within the world that they create for us and killingly funny i think it places and yet never at the expense of the drama. You never don't think that Iron Gron, silly as he is in places, is capable and willing to kill the Doctor. Um, uh, and that's, I think, I think the judgment there is good. So again, hats off to Alan Bromley, who, 
as I say, I remember Elizabeth Sladen saying, you know, he wasn't he wasn't the ideal director for Doctor Who, and there's there's nothing there that suggests to me that he wasn't. Um, I think he does a really decent. I'm not going to change. My, I'm not going to deed poll anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I I think, as I say, uh, that that the story needs a couple of little bits that it could lose. You know, uh, 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 and and and. Yeah, the knight is the robot knight is not the most convincing aspect of it, but I can I can live with it. I think it's I I still think it's a a ten, if not a ten, a, a high nine out of ten. Um, and and I very rarely give full points just because I'm a if not a glass half full, a glass is never entirely full. <laughs> I've, even if I get a full glass, I've spilt a bit on me, probably on a new suit or a freshly pressed shirt before I've even sat down, because that's my life. <laughs> um, which began uh, just a few days before uh, the episode we've just watched aired. So, um, uh, well, look, what's um, so I'm going to have to get back to this. Um, uh, uh, obviously, I've, I've I've recorded this, you know, in the in the new year. I I, I don't know how far ahead uh, this will be released. So we're we're just into lockdown three. Um, gosh, by the time you listen to this, you you could be in lockdown four, <laughs> or who knows? They'll have they'll have they'll have they'll have actually rebooted the whole lockdown franchise, and it'll it'll start again with the lockdown. Uh, or we could all be living in a nirvana where we can go to discos and lick each other's eyeballs and send our children to school um so however uh what has not changed is what tom selinsky recorded for me whenever it was that he sent me this i've not seen it this one says part four reaction and bonus and plugs because that's what i ask people to do is to for the part four uh is to choose a thing from part four a bonus thing and then to plug their wares a lot of people haven't been um but uh, Tom it seems like he will be in good because he's uh, he does much that is worth plugging. My things, I'm going to choose with an honourable mention to Robert Holmes, who I will, I will pick for for some of his stories, and, I, and it goes without saying. I, th I think he of the original series writers is the one that speaks Doctor Who most fluently. I think he gets the show. He is simpatico with all of the elements that make Doctor Who work. <laughs> Uh, and with an honourable mention to Donald Pelmier, one of Doctor Who's non-Agerians, uh, still going uh, as I record this, and I think is probably 92, 93 now. Um, and I do like Professor Rubish, and I've seen him get a couple of bad reviews, and I think they're wrong. I think he's funny, he's dotty, and he pitches it just right, and he's good fun. And he gets the moment where he whacks links with the baseball bat. Love that. Um, but I, I, and I was resisting choosing links because he's in cliffhanger one cliffhanger three but they're both such good cliffhangers that it seems it seems unfair because links the mask is brilliant the costume is excellent they both fit very very snugly which isn't always the case with the sontarans and add to that i i, I think one of the best and, you know, you've got stiff competition when you come to Michael Wisher as Davros, who is just so good and out of this world. Um, yeah, spoilers ahead for when we... Do. Nobody's chosen Genesis yet, you know. This week, 
I've been sent videos that I haven't watched, but they're ready to go for The Dominators and Underworld. And nobody has chosen Genesis of the Daleks. Um, but I think Kevin Lindsay is probably the closest rival in the whole of the classic series to to Michael Wisher as the best you know man in a monster suit performance, which is a different skill uh, to pull off than 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 giving a performance from not behind a you know not behind a mask. When I say monster suit, I mean you know covered in latex as well. I think those two are in a, a different league. Um, they do so much with it, so, and, and that's a real skill. That's a real acting skill. So it has to be Lynx. He's a brilliant creation, and there's nothing about him that is wrong, from his from his hairy eyebrows to his sticky out tongue to his mask within the helmet, from to the costume to his flag to his translation device to the performance. Perfect, brilliant villain, brilliantly rendered. So my thing for part four, but it stretches across the story, is Lynx. Because it's his last hurrah. Commander Lynx going back to war. And did we mention, by the way, that in the in the book the prologue is written by by Robert Holmes, who then gave up. <laughs> and then Terrence Sticks writes the rest of it. But Robert Holmes gets a little copyright notice because he wrote the, the, the very first bit. And also Robert Holmes is a sign of his didn't he submit the storyline as a Sontaran from a, as a missive from a dispatch from Sontaran officer whole mess to uh to uh, the earth-based terran kdix terence dix uh, you know just a little bit of effort um <laughs> i think it's like I, I probably sometimes put more effort into a, 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 a an email uh, uh you know message title than i do into the contents because you know get get them with the funny title the rest of it's easy <laughs> um my thing for the whole thing is i think and I'm, you know, I'm trying to do things where I don't just go on some specific thing that's in one scene and then, you know, miss something that's a glaringly important element of it. I think it has to be the fact that it's an historical with a science fiction element. There was a period where these were referred to as the pseudo historicals. Um, <laughs> no, no, I sued uh, since since the word. Uh, 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 since Sude's corner in Private Eye, I know pseudo is a, is an entirely different word, but I just imagine somebody sitting around being very pretentious about 1066. Um, uh, but uh, they were called pseudo-historicals, where they, they weren't the pure historicals of the largely the Hartnell era. They are the ones which are set in the past, but have a science fiction element. And I think the BBC does period drama so well, and Doctor Who does science fiction so wittily. When... All the excitement of a sci-fi story is married with the BBC's um, tendency to do period drama very well um, and the actors rising to that occasion and making full virtue of these classically trained actors um, in these sort of genres that they're very, they have great aptitude with. I think the fact that it's a, a pseudo-historical um, is, a, is a great key to its success. Watch him now choose Robert Holmes and Professor Rubish, who were my 12th, 12th and 13th man, respectively. Uh, let's see what Tom says. And he's reacting um, as he watches it like I am. And he's, I think he's one of the first people to do that because I think most people have just gone, um, oh, well, maybe not. I don't know. Stop waffling. 
Well, that was a lovely way to spend a couple of hours on a Friday afternoon. It's actually New Year's Day here, so I'm shortly going to sit down and watch Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. But uh, what a pleasure to catch up with this story again. It is just absolutely fantastic. And I'm struggling slightly to pick out something specifically from episode four, so I'm going to cheat a little bit and say Iron Gron. Um, I'm slightly disappointed he doesn't get to take down Lynx at the end. Uh, there's such a lovely push and pull in his character. You know, he runs away and then turns around and blames his troops for his own cowardice. Uh, he brags about how he could have taken Lynx down to Blood Axe just after having been physically bested by him. But then he does turn around at the end and say, no, I'm going to have my revenge. And yet he doesn't. And I'm slightly disappointed by that. We don't even know for sure he got out of the castle alive. We can only assume that he did. Uh, but David Dacre's performance and Robert Holmes' dialogue together just make an absolutely indelible character. And by picking Iron Gron as my favourite aspect of episode four, that frees me up to pick Elizabeth Slade and Sarah J. Smith for my bonus favourite. There's a reason why she's such a favourite companion. There's a reason why she's the one companion from the classic series you got brought back, unless you count K-9. Uh, she just is magnificent. This is a wonderful debut. I believe Elizabeth Sladen did say that she was disappointed that Sarah was never as strong as she was here. And yes, some of the stuff about women's lib seems a little bit dated now, but she makes such an impact. It's so, so impressive. What a wonderful story this is, and what a pleasure to watch it again. Uh, well, Sarah Jane Smith, I mean, that's... I've got to remember, of course, that everyone doing this is just doing the one story, whereas I will be doing everything. So I go, ah, well, I will save Sarah Jane for another time. Of course, he's not going to save Sarah Jane for another time because he's not doing another story. Um, I'm very stupid. <laughs> I mean, I do miss a trick. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm never going to win. I, I sort of have decided. I think I'm never going to get. I'm never going to win. Um, but that's all right because if you if you never expect to win, when you do, it's a bonus. Um, uh, both very legitimate choices. Although Tom seems to think that uh, seems to have, um, missed Iron Gron not making it out of the castle. He dies. He gets shot by Lynx. Uh, shot dead, but Bloodaxe presumably uh, lives to fight another day, uh, 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 as do uh, Edward of Wessex and um, Lady Eleanor. June Brown and Alan Rowe playing the sort of almost the, the, the most peripheral characters, really. That's usually a sign of a good production, then, if Alan Rowe's bottom of the credits. Um, he's, um, um, yeah, I watched Horror of Fang Rock for pleasure over christmas uh and if when i come to do that as as part of this i don't choose uh, him playing skin sale uh I, I, I must be distracted anyway um yeah i actually watched some doc two for pleasure uh and and actually yeah anyway doesn't matter um so look uh tom uh, is a really, really interesting guy. Uh, I really like the way that he embraced that. I think he cho chose some great choices. He chose a great story. And he got in just in time because, as I say, another friend chose the t wanted to choose the Time Warrior about a week later, later uh, and instead has chosen Death to the Daleks. So that's one to look forward to as well because I've got the video for that. I mix up uh, the release order in order to give a variety of Doctors. So who knows when you'll hear this, but... I've given the game away. This was recorded in January 2021. Um, uh, the world is ever-changing, and yet also 
slightly stuck in a groove as well. So who knows what it will be like when uh, these commentaries for this story reach your ears. But I hope uh, whatever the world is like it, where you are, it is a happy time and a happy place. And my thanks to Tom Selinsky. And I'm going to let him plug his wares uh, as the way out of this particular uh, instalment. And I'll be back with another story. Don't know which one, but it won't be a Pertwee uh, next time. So join me for that. And over to Tom with sincere thanks to him. Now, if you're interested in me and the stuff that I do, I uh, run corporate workshops, generally about communications. I write plays and things, including some for Big Finish. And I've, I'm coming to the end of a three-year-plus project with fellow Big Finish writer John Dorney and an actor called Jessica Regan. And we've been working our way through every film that's won Best Picture at the Academy Awards in an order determined by picking them out of a hat at random. Uh, so that's called Best Pick. You can hear all the episodes by going to bestpickpod.com or by using your podcast listening tool of choice. Uh, and you can hear us talking about lots and lots of films, as well as a few special episodes about people like uh, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, Stanley Kubrick, and so on. Uh, it's been a really fun journey. Probably would have finished by the time you've heard this, but we're going to try and keep it going in some form. Uh, thank you very much, Toby, for asking me to take part in this. It's been a tremendous amount of fun, and I hope this is what you wanted. Cheerio. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydoke. My special guest this time around is Tom Selinsky, who can be found on Twitter at Tom Selinsky. My thanks to him and to patrons, who include Lisa Gledhill, Robin Groan, Paul J. Guest, Susan Harrison, Steve Hatcher, Duncan Harvey, Stephen Hill, Simon Hodges, Sam Hollingsworth, Matthew Houliston, Darren Howard, Gregory Hudson, David Hughes, Paul Ingerson, Robert Jewell, Christopher Joyce, Judith Jackson, William Keith, Matthew Kilburn, Andy Kitching, Hendrik Korzeniowski, Andrew Lester, Andrew Llewellyn, Jacob Lumley, Nate Lynch, Daryl McLean, Pitt Maidley, Nick Mellish, James Miller, Justin E. Monaghan, Jeremiah O'Connor, Mark Trevor Owen, Russell Parker, Phil Pascoe, Richard Patey, Ruben Herfindahl, Peter Harness, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat and Richard Straw. The music for these podcasts is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. If you too would like to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Toby There are several tiers. It's pretty egalitarian and most tiers get most things, although you have to go to a fiver a month to get a badge. But £3 per month is the lowest and you can even get 10% off that if you sign up for a year in one go and you get early releases bonus material special access and all sorts of other stuff interaction too you can ask for things tell me what you want and i will give it i'm a i'm a willing needy person who will perform tricks for pennies uh if you don't want to commit to a monthly thing that's totally fair enough you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash toby haydoke and throw me enough for a hot caffeinated beverage uh whenever you feel uh, the need or i sound like uh, i need waking up or heating up uh but you know what costs nothing because i'm just grateful to you for listening to be perfectly honest i'm glad there are people out there who like this stuff i hope you do and if you do please go to your 
podcast provider, uh, especially iTunes and Apple and those places, uh, and give these five stars and a couple of lines of positive review. That really does help spread the word about these, and it means that my labours are not in vain, and that costs you absolutely nothing. So if you could just spare a couple of seconds to do that, I would be very, very grateful indeed. Oh, I seem to have lost my other sting, so there's only going to be one extra bit, which is this bit. Um, do avail yourself of my live comedy shows, twitch.tv forward slash excessmalarkey, on the first Sunday of every month. That's absolutely free. It's my 24-year-old comedy club, which is live in Manchester every Tuesday, uh, and we've done this online version once a month, first Sunday of the month on Twitch, uh, because that's where we went during the pandemic, and it proved to be rather popular. Uh, we have a good run of people, uh, good comics enjoy playing the gig, and there's a lovely community and you can interact you can heckle via your keyboard if you so desire so come and do those things and um i don't know how i'm going to end this now because um i've just used up the i suppose i could use the same sting twice because i have that on my uh, array of things in front of me so i'm going to play the long sting again but i'm then not going to put something after that because we'll be here all day i mean are you still here is, is anybody still here? I've got nothing for you except for the long piece of music again. Um, so that was worth waiting for, wasn't it? So um, thanks for listening. Go away. Um, seek riches elsewhere. There are, you know, there are actually other podcasts that are properly prepared that that have bits at the beginning and the middle that you haven't listened to, and you're listening to the end of this one. You're mad. Um, anyway, uh, you're a Doctor Who fans. You are completists. That was my um that was my BBC video I did. Shall I end on that? And there was the other one, wasn't there? Bam bam that went that went like that. I'm not confident about the rest of it. There we go. That's one for the if if you never collected the BBC videos, that will mean nothing to you. But um which means you're officially not a proper fan. No, it doesn't. It just means you're not old or or didn't weren't able to get the videos. Bye.